Hey, deserving listeners, it is Christmas, and to prepare for this episode today, I asked everyone to submit their questions about Christmas, and Colin actually uh, compiled all these questions, and he starts off with the following stocking stuffers, as he puts them, a bunch of would-you-rather questions. So Colin is asking me, would I rather chug a gallon of eggnog or eat a whole gingerbread house? Would I rather chug a gallon of eggnog or eat a whole gingerbread house? Well, that's kind of tough because eggnog, although sounds funny, it's actually not that bad, especially when you make it, you know, well enough. But uh, chugging a gallon, I mean, one, drinking a gallon of any liquid would be rough. and But chugging, no, that's just not going to work. Eating a whole gingerbread house, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to assume it's a small gingerbread house and I can take my time. So I'm going to eat a whole gingerbread house. Have tofurkey or have a spam turkey dinner? Well, I don't know. Both of them are fine, but I'm going to go with the spam turkey dinner, of course. Uh, hang mistletoe in the bathroom door or hang mistletoe above your desk at work? Well, at work, I work at home. So I haven't been to the university in, I don't know, 10 months. So... I'm just going to say, of course, my desk at work because kissing in the bathroom door, and of course, it would just be my wife because it's just, you know, it's the only people I'm, person I'm going to be kissing around here. So uh, I'm going to say above my desk because I'd rather kiss at my desk in front of, or I'd rather kiss at my desk uh, chair than the bathroom door. You know, it just seems kind of strange to kiss in the bathroom door, although I don't want to, I don't want a bathroom door kiss shame anybody. Receive a gift of in zap straps. I don't know what zap strap is. That a young person thing? Or receive a gift wrapped in twelve layers of masking tape. All right, twelve layers of masking tape sounds really annoying, and I don't know what zap straps are, so I'm going to choose the zap straps. Receive a gift in zap straps. All right, this next question is from Discord, uh, Bucolic Boy says, is it, selfish, is it selfish to just want to spend the holidays relaxing at home with your significant other? How do you say no to attending a ton of gatherings without hurting anyone's feelings? Well, the first thing I'll say is that if your town is on lockdown, then you have the perfect excuse to avoid everybody. But if your town is not on lockdown, or we're talking about another year where we can actually spend time with each other, is it selfish? No, it's not. So <laughs> if, if you want to spend, you should be, you should, with your free time, unless it's something really strange, you should spend it however you want to spend it. Now, some people will call you selfish. They'll say you're being, you know, your your parents are having a Christmas get together and you just don't want to go and you're not going and you might be called selfish, but you know, it's up to you. Now, the other thing I'll say is that I find that a lot of people are lonely and bored and they avoid family get togethers because they are just kind of afraid of, or it takes effort, you know, to hang out with your family. It takes effort. You got to participate in conversations. You might have to bring a dish or something. And it's just, quote unquote, easier to avoid all of it. But in the end, if you're disconnected and you have no support in your life and you feel like your family doesn't really like you or you don't 
get support from anyone around you, then it's kind of your own doing at that point because you're not actually putting effort into relationships. Now, I'm not saying that you have to spend every holiday with your family, but it is something to think about. Why do you want to avoid? Now, it's not selfish to say, no, I'd rather stay home for Christmas time. But I would really just reflect on what you know. what's preventing me. Is it just a preference, which is totally fine? Or am I running away from something that ultimately hurts me in the end? And then you ask, you know, how do you say no? Well, you just tell people nicely. You just say, hey, I love you, but you know what? I, I, I feel bad about this, but I, I think I'm just going to stay home with my significant other and we're just going to have a cozy time with, for ourselves. And I want to make it up to you sometime. We'll hang out another time. And I know that I'm breaking from tradition and I know that this hurts your feelings, but I'm really sorry, but I, you know, I, I, I just don't want to do it. I just, it's just too much effort for me this year, or I want to make a new tradition with my significant other, or this year I just want to do something different. Um, it's all a matter of empathy and it's all a matter of taking care of each other and asserting yourself and being honest and not lying. Right. Uh, you also ask here, do you, do you have any COVID world specific tips? People keep asking me this question and it's normal that you would ask me, but I don't know. I, I mean, uh, it, to, to provide tips implies somehow there's an answer to the problems of which I don't think there really is an answer. Take care of yourself, of course. Try to have bonding moments with people where you can. Obviously, follow the protocols such that you don't get sick, especially right now. I just want to remind everyone that if there was ever a time to be the the most cautious you've ever been, it is now, Uh, depending on where you live. uh, But in all likelihood, you are at the highest risk and your loved ones are at the highest risk right now. And do not delude yourself into thinking that only old people with health problems are at risk. Everyone is at risk. Lots of examples of athletic 20-year-olds dying from COVID or at least being laid up in the hospital for months and having long-term effects. So let's all do our part so that not only for ourselves, but also for those around us. I think that's a key thing to remember. I, I feel like we really had that drilled into our heads in the early part of the locked in the early part of the pandemic, March, April, May. We need to remind ourselves that we're not just protecting us; we're protecting other people, even people we don't know. If we go to a event where we get and and we put ourselves at risk, and then we get infected. And then we go to the store, for example, and we're asymptomatic. And even though we're wearing a mask, we might actually infect someone else. We all understand this, but let's, you know, let's just remind ourselves of that. Uh, Bucolic Boys also has, have you seen or have any thoughts on the Star Wars holiday special? Yeah, of course I've seen the holiday special. And my thoughts are it is both horrible and delightful at the same time. Uh, From the fan page, top fan Red King says, I don't like the holidays. Is this because I have unaddressed family issues? Can not liking the holidays just be a totally normal preference? Yes, absolutely. Holidays, although you might find that there's a lot of people who really love the holidays and there's all these real visual representations of people liking the holidays. Just, you know, the fact that you don't like the holidays is 
it's totally fine. And, you know, just just quietly dislike it. <laughs> you don't want to be a party pooper. You don't want to ruin other people's fun. But just quietly say, you know what? I don't like the holidays. And I, I don't like any of the music. I don't like any of the fanfare. I don't like any of the movies. I just can't wait for it to be over. Uh, it's not a problem. You ask, uh, is this because I have unaddressed family issues? I mean, I don't know. Maybe. It's possible. It wouldn't be surprising if someone who hated the holidays had a lot of bad memories that happened at the holidays, but you could also just be a preference, you know. Top fan Veronica says, what foods do you usually make or eat around the holidays? Ooh, I love this question. This is very good. These are the sort of, all these questions are very specific to Christmas times. And, you know, I don't want to leave out people that don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, December is like, there's a lot of holidays, obviously, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Um, so what foods do I usually eat? Well, I can only really make one thing, which is Spam Musubi, which is essentially Spam Sushi. And over the years, I, I've experimented with different ways of making it. And if you live in Hawaii, you know that there are lots of different ways to make Spam Musubi. And although Spam is disgusting at its core, <laughs> uh, to Japanese Americans, we had to use it because we were denied during World War II and beyond the ability to actually use fish or other kinds of proteins. And so we were given army rations, and that's spam. And so we, we made the most of it. And, and ever since then, we've made it into something that we like. And if you grill it up, if you, so if you just look at spam, it's disgusting. But if you if you fry it up, if you grill it up, like it, it's, it's, uh, it's good. I mean, it's like a hot dog, <laughs> I guess. But anyway, so I, I make spam musubi and I, I do it well, but I, it's pretty much the only thing I can make. It's a little complicated. It's a little bit of a ordeal, but over the past, I don't know, 10 years, I've sort of uh, perfected the form so I can do it pretty quick. But anyway, what, what I usually eat? Well, I eat a lot of spam musubi. Growing up Japanese American, we had one foot in the Japanese American f cuisine, which is different from Japanese cuisine and one foot in the white world. And so our Thanksgiving would, and, and Christmas would have all the normal stuff, you know, the turkeys and the hams and the mashed potatoes and the salads and the casseroles and the rolls and, you know, all the stuff, the stuffing. But then all in addition, because Japanese Americans are insane about food, Asians are insane about food. Not only do we have the, just the full Thanksgiving spread or the full Christmas spread, we would just have that full Japanese-American spread, a full sashimi-like display that was like $100, $200 worth of raw fish just out, you know, massive amounts of rice, all the little uh, pickles. J Japan, I don't know if you know this, but these Japanese-Americans, they eat a lot of these pickles. There's like – uh, there's like daikon and plums and onions, and, and they're all just fantastic. Uh, Japanese and Koreans really know how to have hors d'oeuvres. And so there's just a ton of all these little things that you can eat anyway. And then, of course, you have the pumpkin pies and the Boston cream pies and just all the various different things. So, uh, And in my family, every person – and I have a pretty big family, and every person kind of specializes in their own thing. 
Stacy specializes in this gluten-free banana bread. I don't know. I don't usually eat it, but <laughs> um, and there's a section of the family that's gluten-free, and so they always look forward to that. Um, yeah. So that's what. So that's what foods you usually make or eat around the holidays. Oh, the other thing is, is that when my older brother was very young. But old enough to talk, my mom, so it was just my brother and my sister. I wasn't born yet, and my younger brother wasn't born yet either. And my mom asked my younger brother what he wanted for Christmas Eve dinner. And my mom is thinking he's going to pick something very fancy, you know, something elaborate. And he said that he wanted hot dogs and beans. <laughs> so my older brother uh, Christmas Eve, probably he was three years old or four years old or something. He's, it's like hot dogs and beans. And so my mom laughed. She's like, okay, fine, hot dogs and, and beans. And so we had hot dogs and beans, and it became a tradition. Every Christmas Eve, we would have hot dogs and beans, and we would open one present. And the present was under the tree, and it was not from Santa because, of course, Santa arrives Christmas Eve after, you know, after you go to sleep. So you went to the tree, you picked out one and, you know, you'd really have to choose wisely because you got this present early and you got to play with it Christmas Eve night. So everyone got to open one Christmas, one Christmas present and we had hot dogs. And beans. As time has gone on and it's 2020 now, we have extremely elaborate hot dogs with like you know, the most gourmet hot dogs and hot dog buns and like 10,000 condiments and the the best pork and beans. My mother-in-law makes the best beans. My mouth is watering just thinking about it. It has all this bacon in it and the sauce is just so good. And anyway, so that's what we – Christmas Eve is like a big deal with my family. Uh, Christmas Day also. All the holidays are a big deal <laughs> in my family. <laughs> Anyway, so that's what I'll say about that. All right, top fan Morgan says, how do you address the following difficult family members, those who are racists? So there's a list here that Morgan says. How do you deal with difficult racist family members during the holidays? Well, you have to ask yourself, what is the goal? And I feel like more pe people need to think about that because – you need before, you know, because you head into an interaction with a racist in any context and you just know something's wrong and you know you should do something. But until you have a goal, you won't know what to do. So let's let's just brainstorm potential goals that you might have when you head into a holiday get together and you know that one of your family members is racist and might say something racist. So goal number one, this is just off the top of my head is to change the racist's mind. So we would say, I want to make the racist no longer a racist anymore. Okay. We could also have a goal of, I want to survive the interaction. I don't, I just don't want to get involved. I want, I want to have a pleasant evening with my family. Okay. Another goal would be you, you want to stand up for justice. You don't want to allow someone to say something like that and not and just get away with it you want to you want to counter it at least for your own uh, sort of well-being and also to the crowd around you the other goal might be to change other people's minds that might be listening you know younger impressionable people you don't want the, them to just hear the racist comment and believe it so so those are all 
the goals that I can think of off, off the top of my head. There's probably others, of course. So once you establish your goal, then, and whether it's reasonable or not, and whether you really want to work on that, and then you'll know what to do. If your goal is to change the racist's mind, then you would probably need to go on a campaign longer than just one holiday get-together. You would need to sit down with them and say, I'm just hearing some things. and Or at the holidays, you might try to be convincing. You might say, oh, you know, I just heard you say something. I don't know. You know, here's some research. You know, I've heard other people say. Okay. But if it's injustice that you just want to fight against, then maybe they say something racist and you just bark back at them. And you just you just don't let them get away with saying something like that without you countering them. Okay, so, you know, and if you did that, you're not changing their mind, of course, because you're barking at them, but you are meeting your goal of meeting injustice with power. So define what you want and any goal is open to you and don't feel compelled to do anything racist there's this notion out there that a lot of people have of just like well if i just have the perfect retort they will no longer be racist no the research shows that is just not gonna it might happen in rare cases but not likely all right another question you have morgan is those who judge others with comments about physicality like weight loss gain or hair changes yeah again same thing. What's your goal? Is your goal to get them to stop forever? Is your goal to have a good evening without any conflict? Is your goal to fight injustice with power? And then you'll know what to do. If, if, you're, if your goal is to change their mind, if your goal is to say, hey, I don't want them to do that anymore. I don't want them to make comments about weight, weight loss or weight gain or hair changes. I, I just, I don't want them to do that anymore. Well, you can't just bark at someone one time at Christmas and expect them to change their mind. You're going to have to sit down with them. But if your goal is, you know what, I just want to have a pleasant time and I don't want to get into it with anyone. And so if they say anything like that, you know, I'm just going to let it roll off my back and I'll just silently judge them. (laughs) Anu had a question about how to deal with people that are not being very sensitive. And I think that's the same principle you, you, you want to pre-establish your goal. What What is your purpose? Uh, are you trying to change their mind? Are you trying to just you know fight injustice with power? The other thing to think about is if you know if your goal. Well, I guess regardless of your goal, it's important to remain differentiated. Well, what is differentiated? Well, the 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 concept in a nutshell is uh, it's a multi-dimensional, but one dimension is the ability to understand your emotions and your intellect as separate things. At the, and it's, it's just one way of looking at our minds. It's not the only way. But So you head in uh, to an interaction with your family, and you say to yourself, you know what, I don't want to get in an argument with someone. You know what, I don't want to get bent out of shape when that person does something. And I don't want to get too drunk. And I don't, you know, there's all these things that that you have in mind. And then let's say something goes wrong and you lose your temper or you get too drunk or you get triggered too easily or something. Well, depending on how you want to look at it, one way to look at it is, okay, this time when I head into an interaction with my family, I'm going to try to remain as 
I'm going to try to keep one foot out of the emotional mess, the emotional uh, system, and I'm going to keep one foot in. So I'll have one foot in in that I'm I'm listening and I'm involved and you know I'm mixing it up with with people, but I have one foot out in that I, I want to remember that I am a I'm a separate human being that is not drowning in the emotional field of this family. I hope that makes sense to people. And sometimes you can actually facilitate this behaviorally by wearing your watch on your wrong wrist. I actually have worked with clients. And every time you remember, why do I have my wrist? Why do I have my watch on the wrong wrist? You'll say to yourself, oh yeah, that's right. Remember to not get, not to fall into the emotional field of this family so, so that I get completely lost and I forget who I am. Another tactic is to go for a walk. You know, every hour, just take a walk around the block and, and have a couple of mantras. You say to yourself, you just say, okay, remember your goal was to get through the night. You don't want to get wrapped up in anything. And um, you want to interact, you know, you might have, you might have positive things that you want. It's like, I want to have a good, meaningful conversation with my brother or something. And by taking the walk around the block, you kind of take a breather and you think about your goals. You realign yourself and you remember that you're a separate human being that isn't completely, you know, flooded and engulfed by the emotional field of the family, if that makes any sense. Anyway, Nybel on the Facebook official page says, I've been so relieved to have no family drama during the holidays this year. It has been so peaceful spending time with just my fiance and my cat. But I know that in future years, I'll get the family guilt trip if I don't go to holiday events. Should it be more normalized to celebrate one household holiday gatherings after the pandemic? End of question. So I'm guessing a lot of people have these kinds of questions. And the thing I'll say, as I said earlier, is if you don't want to do it, then don't. You have one life to live. Do you want to waste all those days that you have off, like enduring something you don't want to? No. You deserve to have the holiday that you want. And do not give in to guilt trips. Just tell people no. And, you know, go to a therapist so that they can help you navigate that situation because you shouldn't have to deal with that crap. Now, uh, like I said, you want to think about the bigger picture. Like, let's say your parents give you a big time guilt trip. Well, think about the bigger picture. What kind of relationship do you want to have with your parents? Because when you refuse to hang out with them on Christmas, they are going to take that as a signal that you don't really want to be involved with them, that you don't want a relationship with them in general. So if that's true, then you've successfully communicated that to them. But if that's not true and you're just like, look, I, yes, I want a relationship with my parents. I love my parents. But the holidays is just so chaotic and I'd rather just spend time with my fiance and my cat uh, at home because for, for me, Christmas is, that's a special time. That's, a, that's the way I would want to do it. And for me, holidays are for me and my fiance, not for the bigger picture, you know? So... Uh, sit down with your parents and say, look, I'm not coming to Christmas this year, but I do want to have a relationship with you. And I know you're going to get upset about me not coming, but I don't want you to think of this move by me as a message that I don't want to be involved with you because I do want to be involved with you. I just want you to understand how important it is for me to have holidays that are very small because 
That's just how I like it. And I've never really been the sort of big holiday person. But I do want a relationship with you. It's very common in uh, mainstream culture, especially for younger people, to just have this notion of just like, oh, parents, they're always pressuring me into showing up to things. And certainly that can happen. You can have jerk-faced parents. But often what your parents are communicating is that they're older and wiser and they understand how important it is to have relationships so many people are lonely and isolated. Now, of course, there's a pandemic right now, So, <laughs> uh, but after the pandemic. So, you know, just think about what you want. Don't, don't be a, you know, a 25-year-old who's just like, get away, everybody. You know, it's like, think about the bigger picture and take hold of your life and say, okay, yeah, I do want a relationship with my parents. I just don't want to go to Christmas with them. So here's my plan for... You know, here's my plan. My parents have their plan for how we're going to have a relationship, but I'm an adult now and I'm going to have my plan and I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go to them with my plan of how I want our relationship to be. If you're in a constant state of backpedaling away from people without stopping and saying, wait, what do I want? I'm in control of my life. I don't have to react to everyone else. I'm the only one who has the hands on the wheel and I can't be complaining all the time. What do I want to get out of this? You know what I mean? And again, you have one life to live. Do not waste it being guilt tripped into, into BS. If it's one thing that as a man, I have a privilege of, of saying is like, I, if I don't want to do something, I don't do it. Now I know a lot of men don't, you know, have as much sort of, I don't know, entitlement as I in, in, you know, in body, but, but uh, my point is, is that me personality wise and probably influenced by my gender, I do not take kindly to being guilt tripped into things. And I'll just tell people, no, I don't want to do it. Having said that, I love family get togethers. <laughs> so uh, my parents don't have to guilt trip. I, I was raised in a wonderful family that got together for everything. Every birthday, we, you know, we had Mother's Day and Father's Day. We're Japanese. So we have Boys Day and Girls Day. And, uh, you know, my, my mom gave me presents for Groundhog's Day, <laughs> Valentine's Day, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, uh, you know, when I say Valentine's Day, um, everything was uh, celebrated, you know, quite a lot in my family. And I have a lot of positive memories from that. And I am half extroverted, half introverted. And so I like these events anyway. But... This other question that I was actually thinking about, Nybel, which is during the lockdown for a lot of us, we are now living a different style of life, obviously. And I think that it'll be interesting to see how our societies change after the lockdown. I was just asking my wife about this. I was like, so uh, what was I asking? Oh, I was asking her about how we buy groceries because before the lockdown, we bought groceries the way normal people do, which is. You go to the grocery store, you get a cart, you uh, go up and down the aisles, you, you pile all your crap into the cart, you, you, you find a cashier that, you know, isn't too backed up, you wait in line, you put all the crap on the, on the conveyor belt, they ring everything up, the person putting stuff in the, in the, you know, the bags may or may not be competent, and you pack everything in the car, and you, you know, we all understand this, Right. But now with the lockdown, uh, some of the uh, rest, some of the grocery stores uh, didn't allow people in, but now they do. But now they have this service where 
you know, you can go, you can order online and then you go to the grocery store and, and an employee just comes out and packs it into your car. So obviously this is way more convenient, right? And, or you have, you know, a delivery of, of groceries as well. So I was asking my wife, I was like, so are we going to ever do grocery shopping unless it's like an emergency? Like, oh, we need a stick of butter, go to the grocery store. Are we ever going to buy groceries the way we did before? Because it seems like we shouldn't, because this is so much more convenient, you know? <laughs> the Like to go grocery shopping, my dog is barking at God knows what. But it's so much more convenient. I mean, going grocery shopping, it's like, you know, an ordeal that you do like sometimes twice a week. And uh, I mean, first world problems, but... Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 so along those lines, you just have to wonder how many people are going to be like, you know what? I kind of like doing Christmas small and I'm going to do Christmas small forever. Now, I think there's a flip side, uh, cause I certainly feel this way where I don't want to do anything without having a huge party ever again, because I just, I just miss people <laughs> like like there were times when I'd go to a event, I'd be like, oh, I feel like I've just been going to so many events lately. I'd kind of like a, a, a month where I just don't have so many obligations. I miss those obligations now. <laughs> and so I don't know. We'll see what happens. But for me, I feel like when the lockdown is over uh, for like two years straight, all I'm going to do is socialize with everyone and go out all the time and eat at restaurants and, you know, breathe in people's faces and <laughs> Who knows? Uh, let's take a break. And when I get back, let's continue. Hey, Deserving listeners. As you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right. On the official Facebook page, Jessica says, both of my parents and several close family members have passed away in the past. My grief is always more intense around Christmas. How do you deal with grief exacerbated by the holidays? Well, you deal with it the way you deal with grief at any point in your life, regardless of what time of year it is, which is to notice what your body wants, whether it's to grieve or to rebuild. If your body wants to grieve, then you grieve. You feel the feelings, you talk about it, you reminisce, you go through old videos and photographs, you cry, you get angry, you have the, you have the guilty feelings, but you talk it out and someone reassures you that's not your fault if it isn't your fault, because it probably isn't your fault. You feel the despair. You miss, you know, the, the holidays are bittersweet. And that's just, that's just grief. And if it's to rebuild, if your body wants to rebuild, then you rebuild and you make Christmas or the holidays into something different. And you create new traditions with new people. And 
you find joy where you can and you have fun, enjoyable moments with people. So uh, that's what you do at any point in in grief. I, I find that people will sometimes, because of our society, avoid their grief, either because of internalized depression or no one's listening to their grief. And then it all comes flooding out at Christmas time because the dam can no longer hold back the grief. And then people say, like, how do I deal with this grief? Well, it's it's possible that you were supposed to be, quote unquote, dealing with the grief a long time ago. And the holidays are just making it so you can no longer not deal with it, meaning that you talk about it, you get support, you go to therapy, you create ceremony, you go through the old pictures, you cry, you feel hopeless, you miss the person, you feel that longing, you have that emptiness on the inside, uh, you have the, dis- the existential crisis. These are, these are things. These are real things. These are not to be avoided. You can't avoid them. All right, let's go into another email. All right, another question here from Manon. They say, last year I was assaulted on my birthday, which is three, de- three days after Christmas. I can already feel the anxiety and memories resurfacing, but I don't want the, the past trauma to rob me of another year's holiday. How might one cope with traumatic memories surrounding Christmas so that they can remain present and enjoy the holidays? Well, uh, so again, you can't just cope. These questions, you know, the previous person, how do I deal with grief? Well, you grieve. <laughs> yeah, You can't, I don't know if the question is implying this, but I get these questions all the time of like, essentially what people are asking is, how do I get rid of the grief? You can't. You have to go through the grief. And obviously going to a therapist would help. And you, how do I, you know, this person says, how do I cope with having trauma being re-triggered by the anniversary of the event? You can't really, and by cope, a lot of people mean, how do I get rid of the unpleasant feelings? You're not going to. It's going to ha- you if you already feel the anxiety and memories resurfacing. It's probably going to get worse. You obviously need a therapist to talk about this with, and you need a trauma specialist. And anything short of that, you're setting yourself up for some problems because to have a trauma and to have it resurface is a is a pretty serious psychological event. And so, you know, talking with a therapist is very important. Um, in addition to that, uh, taking care of yourself. Now, you know, you're saying, you know, how can I remain present and enjoy Christmas and the holidays, even though I'm having my trauma triggered? I I don't know if that's possible. Uh, what are you supposed to do? Like turn off your, your trauma, turn off your PTSD. Now, of course, I don't know if you have PTSD, but you have some sort of traumatic reaction that is happening. So recovering from the trauma in therapy is really the only answer. Andre asks, how can someone reduce the weight of having to spend an evening with, not not to mention get presents for, a relative who makes you very anxious? So I'm I'm guessing, okay, so I'm guessing I'm going to get a lot of questions like this. And I just want to, and they're all valid questions, but I don't want to repeat myself over and over again. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to answer this question in a similar way, I asked the previous one, and I'm. If there's another question like this, I'm, I'm just going to skip over it. So, if you had a question along these lines, 
here's my answer. I don't know if it's a good one, but here's my answer. So, you know, how do I deal with spending time with a relative that I don't like? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, There's various different situations that could cause that, right? Uh, Someone could literally be your abuser that you have to spend time with. So it could be on that end of the spectrum, or it could just be someone that just annoys you for some, for some reason. And the, so the answer is, I don't know, but again, the answer is what is your goal? Is your goal to change their mind to, to make them never do it again? Is your goal to get through the evening unscathed? Is your goal to meet injustice with power? Is your goal to look good in the face of being ridiculed? But if you know that this person, based on past behavior, that they're probably going to do this or that and it's going to bother you, then you just have to go into it assuming it's going to happen. Make a plan. Okay, they're, they're probably going to do this. They're probably going to do that. What's my plan? What do I want, what do I want to do? How do, how, instead of leaning back, lean into it and say, this is what I'm going to do about it. I, I guess I've dealt with this, of course, but I don't know. My family doesn't really have elements like this, um, but occasionally it does. And the thing that I have tried to do is I just try to get through the evening and I, and I try to spend the time. Like one of the things that I've always tried to do with holidays is, is I'll say, you know what? I want to have a good time and I want to have good either pleasant and or meaningful conversations with the people that I, that I really like to talk to. And so I try to remind myself during the event of like, okay, make sure you uh, sit down next to that person and talk with them for a while. Cause you haven't, you want to catch up with them. I've a lot of people, especially when you're the younger one, meaning you you're going to your parents event or something will treat it like they're on their heels. you you go into the event, like, how do I deal with this? I don't, you know, I don't like this. I'm being guilt tripped. You, it, once you're past a certain age, it's your life. And this is what existential psychotherapy gives us is this perspective of life is suffering. Life has bad moments and good moments. Life has good elements and bad elements. And that's just the way that it is. And if you want to have tradition and family and fun and holiday moments, then you're, you're going to have some negative sides to it. Be like saying, you know, I love I love Christmas caroling, but I I hate the cold. How do I deal with the cold? Well, it's just going to be cold outside. It's December, you know, if, unless you're in Australia or something. But the point is, is that uh, look at this before you go. Instead of like going, oh my god, I don't want to deal with this. Say to yourself, I'm going to be dealing with this. What? How? What's my goal? How am I going to get what I want out of this? Knowing that that person is probably going to do X, Y, and Z, what do I want out of it? You know. And if if you conclude, I don't even want to deal with this crap. I don't want to go. And so then you got to zoom out even further and say, okay, well, what do I want out of my relationships with these people? Do I ever want to see them again? I've had clients before where we've had this conversation, and I will flat out just ask them. I'll say, let's say that your family, you know, doesn't care. They just, they, they let you make your decision about this and you get to make the choice to see these people ever, ever again. Do, would you want to see 
your family of origin or whomever ever, ever again, you know, if, if you could, would you never go to another family function? I would ask, you know, a question like that. And it's interesting to see some people's responses because usually the response at the beginning, if the person deep down doesn't want to ever see their family ever again, they'll say, well, you know, I don't mind going to holidays. And I'll say, okay, you don't mind going, but what do you want? What do you want to do? I, I hear you don't mind going to holidays, but if it was totally up to you, if you could wave a magic wand, make a choice, and everyone would be happy with it, would you go to any other family events? And again, I, I'll, usually people, because of the way they're raised, they'll, they'll just be, you know, well, I don't know. I, I could go to Christmas. I, you know, I don't, you know, Christmas, I could handle that. I could, you know, it's a big deal to my mom. That's not, that doesn't answer the question. <laughs> if you could wave a magic wand and never go to another family event for the rest of your life and everyone was cool with it, what would you do? And a lot of times people are like, well, gee, I guess I would never, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't mind never seeing my family ever again. I don't like them very much. So getting to that place of at the very least admitting that to yourself, because if you're in a constant state of that very loud voice yelling at you, but meanwhile, you're forcing yourself to go to these events and you're in this constant state of conflict internally as you're as you're preparing for the event and then when you're at the event and then as you're driving away from the event you're just going over all the all the terrible things that happened and then you're just bracing yourself for the next event that's not a way to live life for yourself (laughs) you're living a life for other people that might not deserve you living your life for them so what I've seen some people do, though, sometimes is once they actually begin to assert themselves and say, I don't want to do this and I'm not going to, and they, they finally get to that place, they actually will sometimes say, well, I think now that I have the freedom to say yes or no, which for the first time I finally feel, I feel like maybe I do want to spend some time with my parents. I mean, yeah, my parents can annoy me sometimes, but they're my parents and I yeah, I do want to spend some time with them. And I'll be like, is that is that your choice or are you just doing that because of shame or guilt or something? And, you know, we'll explore that. It takes a long time. So that's what I'll say to that. You know, when you ask, you know, how do I reduce the weight of, you know, Andrea asks, how do I reduce the weight of having to spend an evening with a relative who makes you very anxious? Well, like I said, you zoom out. What do you want do you want to spend time with these people at all? And if so, this this relative that makes you anxious is just part of the package. Now, maybe you go to your family and say, hey, this relative makes me anxious. Can we all talk about a solution to that? Uh, you know, take the bull by the horn. What, what, what most people do, regardless of age, is... They just brace themselves. You know, they just go into these events. It's like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Instead of making a rational plan heading into it. Now, I'm not saying your plan is going to work, but at least try something instead of white knuckling it, as, as they say. And if it means going to therapy, then do that. You know, this wouldn't be an unusual thing to go to therapy for. I've talked with a lot of clients for years about these kinds of issues. It is not simple. It's not just as simple as saying, well, you know what, I'm just going to deal with, you know, the kinds of tips that I'm having in this episode. 
uh, are for some people, given the way they were raised, not easy to implement. Anyway, let's go on. Katie says, I find the holidays so very stressful. What with cooking and shopping, I always have a migraine at Christmas time. Is it common to feel this way? Yeah, I think a lot of people could relate to that. Migraines are rough and there is just no way around it. I mean, some people, even without any stress in their life, will just have a, a migraine just come on. So I'm sorry you're going through that, Katie. That That's pretty, um, you know, I have mild headaches sometimes and it drives me crazy. Um, I understand migraines to be completely debilitating and so and very painful and all-encompassing. So I'm sorry that you go through that, Katie. Uh, what I'll say is that it's all about rational planning along these lines as well. That uh, I find a lot of people as they head into the holidays, they, and I think maybe women are more prone to this because we put more pressure on women to like cook all the stuff and to buy all the presents and to make Christmas time special for all the kids. And and I what I'll say is that before Christmas began, and of course this episode is on Christmas, so it, you know I guess this is for next Christmas, is to think about what you want and how to balance that out with what other people want. I'm guessing, Katie, that if you and I sat down and evaluated the balance there, that there would be way too many things that you're doing that you don't really want to do and that are putting a lot of pressure on you, like the cooking and the shopping. And not enough is spent on what you need and what you want. And maybe in that process of balancing those scales, you're going to disappoint some people, but screw them. <laughs> really? I mean, unless it's some fundamental need that you're denying a child or something like the fact that you can't make 10 dishes for Christmas day and you can only make seven uh, is, uh, you know, people are just going to have to deal with, deal with that. So uh, that's what I would think about. All right, this next question from Morgan says, I work with COVID-positive people, and I don't want to expose my family. My family are not thrilled with my decision to not spend time with them. How can I stop feeling like dirt for not spending time with my family during the holiday? Yeah, well, of course, you're, you're working with people who are COVID-positive, and you never know if you're carrying it. Uh, at least, you know, there's a lag time from the time you get tested. And sometimes tests aren't accurate and you don't want to expose your family. I mean, you know, it's, it's weird. We live in a weird world where you could live across the street or even in the same household with someone who understands the science of COVID and another person right next to them could believe that COVID is a hoax. So you might have family members somewhere on the spectrum who, even though you're like, look, I could be positive for COVID and there's no way for me to know that because that, because of where I work and I do not want to expose you and potentially kill you or kill those people around you. You would think that would be enough of a, <laughs> I mean, if people understand the science, which I just can't believe people don't understand given that all the experts of the people we're supposed to listen to and not politicians because politicians are not experts. I hope most of us understand that and uh, that we would understand. But so we live in this weird world that you can't really uh, trust that other people are in, are in the same scientific world that you are. 
So there's that. Um, but again, as I was saying before, is the reason why people are guilt tripping you is not because they're jerk faces in all likelihood. It's because they want a relationship with you. And so if you can, if you, now, if you don't want a relationship with that person, then you are probably just going to hurt that person. That's just the way it is. You're essentially wanting to break up with your family, which is fine. That's what you want to do. But if you want a relationship with these people and for whatever reason they don't understand and, and they're guilt tripping you, they're guilt tripping you because they're, they're sad and they're hurt. And so if you reassure them and say like, look, I, I get it that you're hurt and I'm sorry and I feel guilty, but, uh, and I believe me, I, I value my relationship with you, but I'm going to reiterate my reasons here, but don't mistaken, you know, me not coming to Christmas as some message that I don't like you or that I don't love you or I don't want to spend time with you. That is definitely not the case. I, you know, if you address that and they're still bent out of shape, then I don't know. There's just something wrong with them, <laughs> honestly. Like if you lay it on the line like that and you say that you love them and you tell them your predicament, predicament, you tell them that you're guilty, you feel guilty. You tell them that you want a relationship and that when this whole thing is over, you want to see them in person frequently, if that's even true. And they're still bent out of shape, then, you know, I, I don't know. Just you just say, well, I don't, that's on them, man. Like, I, <laughs> I was honest. I, I told them how I felt. I was vulnerable. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say. And then you just move on with your life. Esther says, school is all about Santa coloring and Christmas storybooks and singing Christmas songs, but I am Jewish and my young child is Jewish and is the minority in his class. How can parents best support kids who feel alienated because they don't celebrate all the fun things their friends do? Yeah, I suppose I should have put this up front (laughs) because people might be alienated just by this episode. Uh, Yeah, well... You know, I don't know uh, that the solution would be, and, and I don't know what sort of school, Esther, your kid is going to, but schools should not have religious things. <laughs> it should be pretty obvious. So if this is a public school, I, I would, you know, tell a school that you have a war on Christmas and <laughs> you just don't want it to happen. It shouldn't happen. Um, so, yeah. As a as a Christmas celebrator myself, it's hard for me to relate, obviously. But yeah, I can't imagine what it must feel like to 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 not celebrate Christmas and to be of a religion that actually is like, no, we don't. That's just that's a, that's a different religion. That'd be like a a Christian celebrating Hanukkah or something. You know, it's just like, no, I'm not. I'm not because some Jewish people I know will celebrate Christmas, uh, not as a Christian holiday, but just as a cultural holiday. You know, Santa and the tree. These are all pagan things anyway. They're not, they're not Christian. Christians adopted it. So you can just say, yeah, you know what? We're, it's, it's an American holiday, Christmas time. And it, you know, it has nothing to do with Jesus or any, it just has to do with trees and gift giving and charity and fun and this magical creature that comes down the chimney. And, uh, but obviously a lot of people don't do that. And so your question is, you know, how can parents best support kids? I would advocate by talking to the school. I would talk with the kid about how there's nothing wrong with them. But, you know, it's tough because you could you could give all the coaching that you could to the kid that is accurate. You could spend a lot of time uh, helping your kid emotionally. But when you throw them back into the 
into the mix and they're getting all these messages that Christmas is the norm and how come Johnny, what, you don't celebrate Christmas? Why? What's wrong with you? You don't believe in Santa? What do you do on Christmas? You just sit around and, you know, and you're like, well, we, we eat Chinese food, you know? And so it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a sad situation. And maybe what you can do for us, Esther, is the fact that you are voicing your experience a little bit in this question. All of us, other people who are listening, can think about how we might be ruining other people's lives in our Christmas celebratory thing. Now, I celebrate Christmas. I have a Christmas tree. We had a Christmas special podcast episode, but I am not forcing it on anyone. (laughs) You don't have to listen to it if you don't want to. If a kid is going to school, they got to go to that school. They can't on a, you know, they can't decide to go to a different school in December. And so those people in power, you know, they need to think about that kind of stuff. Anyway. All right. Desiree asked a bunch of questions. How do you handle the is Santa real question from your kids? Well, it's very complex and there's a lot of different options and a lot of different approaches. And you'll find a lot of judgment online if people are doing things that the other people don't do. So there's a lot of options. One is to uh, pick a date and say, okay, when the kid turns six, I'm going to tell, I'm going to be honest with them. But before they're six, I'm going to act like Santa's real. And every time they ask, is Santa real? I'm going to say yes. That's one approach. Uh, With that approach, you gotta, you gotta uphold it. And once they, once you tell them the truth, you might have to do some damage control by saying, so I just want to be clear to you that, you know, I, I tricked you about Santa, not because I didn't love you, but because I love Santa Claus and I love the idea of Santa Claus and it's a magical time. And I wanted you to have that. I had that when I was a kid, but know that I do not typically lie to you. And that wasn't fun for me or something. I don't know. I don't know if a six-year-old would understand that, that speech. I'll tell you for myself, and this is just my experience. It's not everyone's. My parents did the normal thing. They completely tricked me that Santa was real, and I believed. And I remember friends of mine telling me, you know, Santa's not real. You know that, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? Santa's real. That's crazy talk. And then one day I was – so in my family, all the kids would sleep in the same room on Christmas Eve. It was another kind of fun tradition that we did well into adulthood. (laughs) And we would all sleep in the same room, me and my three siblings. And – one year I was four or five and I woke up, uh, or I didn't wake up, but I had to go to the bathroom and my older brother and sister forgot and let me out of the room to go to the bathroom. And I was walking on the hall and I saw my parents in the living room frantically wrapping all the presents. They, so my parents bought, so my, we weren't rich growing up, but Every extra penny that my parents had went into buying us elaborate Christmas gifts at Christmas time. Like I said, we were not rich, but even my rich friends were jealous of all the all of the stuff I got for Christmas. I mean, we just got so many stuff and and quantity and quality, Qu- quality and quantity. <laughs> and each of us and so many presents uh, were present that 
they there's no way they would fit around the tree. And so each of me and my siblings got a corner of the living room. So one corner would be for each of us and it would just be piles and piles of Christmas presents. And each of us would open one present at a time. And, uh, and everyone wanted to do this, by the way, like, you know, I would open a present, my brother would open and, and everyone would take their time and everyone would watch, you know, all six of us would watch one person open a present and then you'd take it out and you'd play with it and people would be like, oh, it's cool. Okay, now it's time for Mark to open a present. Okay, everyone stop what they're doing and watch Mark open his present. And we'd go around and it would take hours <laughs> because there were so many presents for us four kids. Um, so I'm walking down the hall and I see my and they and so they would buy all the presents, but they wouldn't wrap any of them until Christmas Eve night. They would be up until four in the morning wrapping presents, no joke. And then my mom would sleep outside the door uh, on the floor <laughs> to prevent us from sneaking out and going downstairs to the presents. And uh, because she also wanted to sleep in. And so she was like, we're sleeping until nine o'clock or something. And she would sleep outside the door and she wouldn't let us leave. Anyway, so I'm walking down the hallway. My, my older brother and sister forgot to stop me from going to the bathroom. And I see my parents frantically opening presents. And I go to the bathroom. My parents kind of look at me. They're like, oh, what, you know. And Santa always had different wrapping paper. Anyway, so I go to the bathroom and I, I come back to the bedroom and it didn't register. And then the next day I'm at Christmas and we're opening the presents and I'm like, wait a second. All of Santa's presents are the same wrapping paper as the ones I saw mom and dad doing. You know, I, wait a second. Are they? And it just sort of clicked in my head. It's like, oh, oh, of course. Santa isn't real. Santa is mom and dad. It did not hurt my feelings. It did not ruin my trust in them. <laughs> it did. There's something about kids where they're already magical thinkers anyway that in in some circumstances it doesn't bother them. Now, other kids, and you'll hear reports of this, will be devastated when they learn that they were being lied to. And so what do you do? Well, so again, if you do the trick plan – then you have to be ready to do some damage control once you tell them. The other option is that some parents will do is when the kid asks, they'll tell the truth. So they sort of act like Santa is real. But as soon as the kids, usually the kid doesn't ask until they're three or four anyway. And then when they ask, then you say, oh, you know what? I told myself, if you ever asked me that question, I would tell you the truth. And here goes, you know, you tell the truth. The other option is you don't ever tell them that Santa isn't real. You tell them from the start that that Santa is not real. Sorry, how did I say that? Um, you, you never tell the kid that Santa is real. And from the very beginning, and that's fine too. Uh, you know, kids aren't emotionally damaged when they don't uh, live in that world that Santa doesn't exist. You can still make Christmas, you know, if you celebrate Christmas – you can still you can still, you can still make Christmas special by having the presents and everything, and you can have the Santa paraphernalia and whatnot. And you might want to tell your kid, by the way, there are other friends of yours that believe Santa is real, and you don't want to ruin it for them. So be nice and don't tell them that Santa isn't real because 
uh, they'll they'll come around eventually. This is just something that you just can't tell other people. You know. So there's a lot of different uh, approaches. That the thing that I tell people, w- regardless of what topic it is, when it comes to you know what I do with my kids, is it's not about like here's the answer, you know, here's the way. It's adjust to the child. You know your kids, and every kid is different, and. Uh, you know, understand the bigger picture is they want to feel loved. They want to feel like they can trust you. They want to have fun. And, you know, there's a lot of options there. There's probably other options I didn't mention. Anyway. All right. Desiree has a great question. Another question here. How can you teach your kids about volunteering and donating during the holidays? My answer to this is lead by example. If from the time they're very young, you just always volunteer as parents and you bring your kids with you. If you, every holiday or whenever, donate every every Christmas season and you involve them in it, like, okay, we're all going to pitch in to donate and here's where our donations are going. I'm going to give $100. Johnny, you have $50 in your piggy bank. How much money would you like to give? And, you know, they might, I, they might be like, I don't want to give my money. And be like, well, the reason I don't want to give the money either, really, but I also understand that there are people who have much less than, than we do. And kids get that, man. Like, you explain that to kids, that some kids, some people don't have enough money to buy clothes or food. You tell that to kids, it is a fundamental, understandable thing to children. Children do not have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. And when you explain it to them, kids are very, if you've raised them well enough, if, if you've not abused them, then they have a big, big heart and they will, they'll want to contribute. Now, maybe it's a quarter, <laughs> but you know, it doesn't matter. It's what's the difference between a quarter and $5 or whatever. It's the act that counts uh, because you're going to put in a lot more money than that. And you just you just get them started early. You make it a, tradi- a tradition. If you start early and often and you do it as a family, children learn lessons this way. So that's what I'll say to that. All right, Desiree has another question. The Christmas tree debate, real trees versus fake trees. What is your stance? Well, I don't know all the details. <laughs> it's, I'm not an expert. So, uh, but we have a fake tree because we don't want to have our house burned down. And I remember how much uh, real trees, how much of a pain in the butt they were. You had to go to the thing. You got to pick out the right one. You got to somehow haul it home. You have to deal with pine needles. Your animals might want to eat the tree or pee on it, or (laughs) you've got to keep it watered. You have to keep a fire extinguisher close by. Then when you're done, you got to dispose of it somehow. Whereas a fake tree, it, you know, it's just a big plastic thing that you just unfurl and you don't have to deal with all that stuff. And if you buy a, you know, a good solid fake tree, it, it could last you your entire life. Stacy and I uh, were getting a little tired of our older fake tree. And last year we, you know, did a lot of shopping. We like went to the Home Depot and kind of went around and looked at all the different kinds and, and, uh, you know, made a choice because I think we both at least kind of knew that this might be the last tree we ever buy. So, you know, 
for us, it's fake. <laughs> now, it kind of sucks, right? Because you want that real tree, but you know, just light one of those pine scented candles, and uh, all the magic comes comes around. Desiree also asks asks, what are my favorite Christmas songs? Well, I could go on and on about this because there are so many great Christmas songs. And I grew up in choir, and we sing a lot of them, and I have a lot of good associations with various different arrangements of them. You have you, know, you have simple arrangements, you have choir arrangements, you have rock arrangements. And I actually recorded a Christmas album. Uh, I recorded, I don't know, 12 or so Christmas songs. And and I just love Christmas music, and I, I love it in various different forms. And I'm actually posting a Christmas song, Little Drummer Boy, which I could say is my favorite Christmas song, on YouTube. So if you want to go to YouTube and and listen to my version of Little Drummer Boy, you can listen there. All right. Balas asks, is it true that suicide rates go up on Christmas? No. Yeah, depression and suicide, if anything, if I remember the statistics right, it actually goes down during Christmas, during the holidays. It actually goes up during the spring. Uh, there are various different speculations as to why, but no, Christmas and Christmas time does not experience higher rates of depression and suicide. Ballas also asks, what Christmas movie do you guys recommend? Well, of course, you got Elf. Elf is just the most delightful, funny, wonderful movie of all time on Christmas Day. Uh, my wife loves Christmas at the Cranks. So every Christmas time we watch that. I cannot recommend that movie. It is a stupid movie, but is a, it's a tradition. And so that's what we watch. Of course, you got all the stop motion movies, the classics, the Rudolphs, and all those other ones. So I don't know. There's and I, I was me and Stacy were flipping through uh, Netflix the other night, looking at the Christmas category. There are so many Christmas movies on Netflix right now. I feel like Netflix just produced like a hundred new Christmas movies. It's really weird, but you know. So if there's ever a time to watch Christmas stuff, it's now. Angela says, I am uncomfortable with receiving gifts. What do I do? Interesting. Um, well, I would try to figure out what's at the basis of that discomfort. Because, you know, most people are at least mostly okay with receiving gifts. I think common things to investigate, of course, I don't know you, Angela, but uh, common things that I could imagine uh, that you could explore would be, that it obligates you to return the favor and you're, you don't like obligation. It could be that when you are given a gift, you have to uh, have attention drawn to you and you've, have, you've had traumas around attention being drawn to you. That when you're given a gift, you're expected to say thank you and you have some traumas around saying thank you. I mean, you know, a seven-year-old is given a gift by a friend of the family and 20 eyes are on that child, 20 sets of eyes are on that child and the child is shy and child, Oh, I got a gift. And they open the gift. And then the parents are like, say thank you to uncle Johnny. And the seven year old is like, but I don't want to. And you know, you repeat that enough times and you make it intense. Well, you're going to grow up with a complex around, around receiving gifts. So that's what I would investigate for yourself, Angela. But, you know, it could be other things just like you just don't like gifts. You're just like, you know what? I have everything and I don't like the materialism of, of uh, Christmas time, which 
I'm surprised no one's asked me about. We we all need to think about the materialism of our society, particularly around the holidays. We got Black Friday and all this stuff, and everyone should just think about, okay, what am I trying to do when I'm buying this thing? Am I trying to make my life more convenient? You know, maybe that's valid. Am I trying to make myself feel better in a very superficial way? Am I trying to keep up with the Joneses? What am I trying to do here? Because we live in a society that just takes for granted the fact that buying things is just a part of your happiness. And that is just not true. (laughs) It does not work. And so uh, maybe you don't like receiving gifts because it reminds you of how materialistic we are. and, And, you know, that would be normal. So I realized that I've been recording for an hour and I thought, well, that's, that should be about enough. But then I realized I've only gotten halfway through the questions and there's all these questions from the Facebook fan page and I can't quit before answering the fan page questions. I should have started with them. What's wrong with me? All right. Superfan Orla says, what are your Christmas traditions? Well, I feel like I've already gone over a lot of them. The only ones that I haven't mentioned would be eating a, a potato cheese casserole that my mom would make. Christmas morning. The other one is that Stacy makes a very elaborate Christmas card every year uh, for our family, and it it takes her a long time to make. And everyone marvels at these Christmas cards. They're just like, I can't believe, like th- this Christmas card. We're in a we're in a snow globe, and it's supposed to emulate, you know, Christmas time, but also that we're all in these bubbles. And it's a very inventive Christmas. There's, 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 you know, the animals are there and we have costumes and there's a lot of Photoshop involved anyway. And then Supervan Orla says, what are your favorite Christmas films? Well, again, I already went over that, but I guess others worth mentioning are Die Hard and also Groundhog Day, A Nightmare Before Christmas, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I mean, I don't know if Little Women, the most recent Little Women, is considered a Christmas movie, but I loved that movie that came out last year. A Charlie Brown Christmas, of course. I think I watched that every year when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, Bad Santa is a pretty funny movie. And then, of course, you got to go with A Christmas Story, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, those are all the cl- There's probably others in there, but those are off the top of my head. Superfan Louise says, I've heard that some people go so far as to install a fake Santa cam to convince their kids that he is watching and making sure they're being good. In our house, presents are guaranteed, and the idea of Santa is just extended play. What are your thoughts on using the idea of Santa to manipulate children? (laughs) So, I mean, when you phrase it that way, it sounds awful. But, you know, parenting is complicated and it's hard, and sometimes kids are more rambunctious than others, and sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And maybe having Santa uh, watching, you have a Santa camera like, hey, remember, be, be good because Santa's watching. And if you want those good gifts over the break, you know, over Christmas times, you got to make sure that you're a good kid. You know, it parenting is weird and we don't want to judge other parents just with few details like this. Now, could this be a sign of something overall that was bad happening in the household year round for sure. But I don't know. I, I, I've i seen so many different parenting practices work and I've seen a, the same practices not work. 
So, I mean, there's some obvious ones that don't work, like beating your kids, this sort of thing, or starving your kids, or giving your kids complex around food, or you know, there's some obvious ones. But you know, the Santa Cam, and I could see that being used well, and I could see it being used badly. Superfan Jenna says, "Dr. Kirk, are you still going to do couples therapy, the show that you had started?" Um, so yeah, if, you, if you're not aware, I do these reaction videos on YouTube and I had done a couple episodes of couples therapy or just one episode, I'm not sure. And yeah, it's definitely on the list. There's a lot of things that people have requested that I want to do and couples therapy is on the list. I'm also integrating that, uh, TV show into my, my course on couples therapy at the university because, it is actual couples therapy that's being filmed, and it provides a really good example for us to watch. The thing about university teaching is that a lot of the films available to us are these really cheesy films of actors or just badly filmed real couples. And to have this, I think it's Showtime, I'm not quite sure, TV show that's well-produced is uh, very helpful for instructors to to say, "Hey, students, this is what this is what couples therapy could look like." And the way that I will be using it in my class is to critique the therapist's decisions and to go over different interventions that the therapist is using and talking about the pros and the cons. Famous patron Lyndon says, "Is Santa a bad role model for being absent?" 364 days out of the year and then trying to compensate with material presence instead of other types of care. Yeah, famous patron Lennon, that's a funny question. I'm guessing you're saying it in jest and I will take it as such, uh, mostly because no one considers Santa to be their caregiver. And if any child does, then we are in a load of trouble to begin with. So Santa is just a magical creature that brings joy and presence and laughter. And uh, I think most kids can... As long as they're being taken care of the rest of the year, they're, they're not going to be too concerned with that. All right, this next question is from Beth. She writes, Every year, my mom gets upset because no one, especially my dad, thinks of getting her much of anything for Christmas. I am finding myself as a mother in the same situation with my own family. This year is especially poignant because my kids aren't even making crafts at school to put under the tree. I don't want my children's holiday memories to be of me sad on Christmas like I know of my mom, but cheese and rice, it's 2020. Why are moms still being overlooked when it comes to Christmas? What's a decent way of handling this without either looking like a Grinch or a spoil sport? This is interesting. So we've gotten a lot of questions, and I've skipped over some of them because they're repeat, about, you know, how do I deal with the fact that I'm being guilt guilt tripped by my mother to come to Christmas all the time. And when I didn't want to go, I don't understand why she's so upset. Well, it's possible that she's lived a lifetime of sacrificing for you and you've done butt kiss for her. And all she asks is for you to show up on Christmas. Okay. I don't know, of course, but Beth here is talking about that. It was like, I spent my whole life watching my mom being neglected by everyone, including my father and being sad over Christmas. And now I'm the one being neglected over Christmas. My kids don't do anything for me. My husband doesn't do anything for me. There's no, there's no presence under, you know, the school doesn't even force the kids now because of COVID to, to make presents for me. And so there's, there's nothing for me here, you know, cheese and rice. It's 2020. Why are moms still being overlooked when it comes to Christmas? 
Well, there's, there's two main reasons. One is a sexism, of course. Women and mothers are expected to sacrifice themselves. It's just a story we tell ourselves that, well, isn't that women's purpose in life? And isn't that what all moms want to do? Isn't that how they see themselves is just sacrificial? And so we don't have the same moral compass when it comes to mothers. And so there's that. The other is that women will internalize this message and believe that that's what they're supposed to do. And then they live their life from that place and will have a, a lifetime, you know, not just during Christmas, uh, giving a lot of messages that, that they don't have needs. And they have just as many needs as everybody else. And so uh, what I would do is I would go on a campaign, Beth, not only over Christmas, but all the time to get in touch with your needs and communicate them. And to tell other people, look, you know, I've been listening to this podcast and I'm changing my ways. I'm going to be a part of this world now. My needs are going to be heard. You don't have to, you don't have to meet my needs, but you're going to hear about them. And you will not consider them to be a woman nagging you because it's coming from a woman. Understand that women deserve and mothers deserve just as much love and attention as every, as everybody else. And that uh, although I'm expected to sacrifice myself, that's that's really stupid, and I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, maybe you go to family therapy, maybe you lay it out in a more diplomatic way, maybe you get your husband on board first, and then the kids. You know, it, it's a it's a matter of making sure that everyone understands. Now, on the other hand, you know, it's just hard sometimes, and when you have to beg everyone to take care of you or to notice you or to care. It can be really laborious, and so sometimes it's just a matter of pulling back. And I've done this myself too at times. I've said to myself – because I'm that way too, sort of, where I like Christmas to be a big deal. And there's sometimes when I'm just like, well, you know, not everyone thinks of it as a big deal. And I just have to say, eh, you know, you can't win them all. <laughs> and what are my needs overall? And maybe my Christmas needs aren't going to be met, but – Maybe the rest of my needs can, you know, what, what's the bigger picture here? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one uh, because even if you did effectively communicate your needs, other people might just be like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not into it. Having said that, what I'm going to say to everyone, regardless of if you're a mom or not, is we all have needs, right? We all have needs for closeness. We all have needs to be valued. We have needs to be loved. We have needs to love. We have needs to get gifts and give gifts, whether it's emotional gifts or otherwise. And let's all just focus on that. Let's focus on love. Let's focus on connection. And if you're not getting it, then ask for it. And if you think when you do an inventory of how much love you are giving this season and you think you're not giving enough love, then look at that. Maybe you need to be giving more love. Giving love begets love and also just makes you feel better when you give love. We, it, it takes effort. You know, giving love doesn't just spring from us automatically all the time. You have to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live intentionally from a loving place, one that says you matter to me, you annoy me sometimes, but overall you matter to me. I got this gift for you or I got this card you know, the some of the best gifts are just a handwritten card on a piece of paper that you hold that you fold in half, and you give to someone, and it's the best gift they've ever received because it's heartfelt and it says a lot of really great things in it. 
So it's not a matter of money. It's not a matter of of you know fanciness. It's a matter of coming from your heart, and that's that's the spirit of Christmas. You know, I hope that that's what people walk away of not materialism, but of togetherness and family and love. So. If you have a mother that is being oppressed by sexism and neglect, then make sure you do your part. Uh, Active fan Doreen says, When we were little, my younger sister was so scared of Santa that she ran away crying every time she saw him. This behavior lasted for quite a few years. Why do some children love meeting Santa and others find him scary? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of factors that I've observed in children one is is how they are dispositionally. Some kids love strangers, and you'll see this. Some kids just – either they love strangers or they're just totally cool with strangers, and they're never traumatized when they're forced to interact with a stranger, or at least it's not bad. Other kids from the time they're very young just really do not like strangers. Now, sometimes that's disposition. Sometimes it's the way you're raised. If you're raised in a way where you aren't exposed to a lot of strangers, that could – make strangers be very strange to you and very hard for you to deal with when you're young. It could also be that if you are neglected emotionally, sometimes you're very open to other people because you're like, yay, I can get my needs met from other people, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of reasons in that category, disposition and attachment, but also just association. If the first time you meet Santa, you are in a mall and you're three and your parents are just like, go sit on that man's lap, and you, you're you not comfortable, Santa looks like a stranger to you. you, you don't like to be away from your parents, you're kind of an anxious person to begin with, and you're crying, and your parents just be like, you know, just do it. And, you know, they sort of force you to sit on Santa's lap for 25 seconds while they take the picture. That could actually be a legitimately traumatic moment for a three-year-old. No joke. From the outside, it's just like, ah, it's cute. You know, three-year-old crying while they sit on Santa's lap. You know, we all know everything's fine. Santa isn't a predator, isn't a monster. But to the three-year-old in their world, Santa could be a monster. And so some children, for whatever reasons, whatever factors led up up to it, their first few encounters with Santa – are perceived or engineered in such a way that really set it up for disaster. And then once that association is made in the child's mind, it's hard for them to let go of it. And every parent knows this. When you'll see your – especially if you have more than one kid, you'll see kids have certain things that just terrify them. Like dogs will terrify a certain kid for – because the first few times – not because a dog bit them necessarily, but because their first few interactions with a dog – just had a little bit more on the scary side because to children, every new every new experience is very quickly assessed by them as either a hundred percent threatening or a hundred percent fine. <laughs> you know, you give a kid a brand. You know, kids are exposed to new things all the time, new foods, new people, new experiences, new thoughts, new emotions, new new words, new. You know, there's just so much newness. And so children have a pretty good gauge of like, okay, that's bad, that's good, that's bad, that's good, that's scary, that's fine. And so there, it, it's, it shouldn't be surprising that if the conditions aren't right, that a child will be like, oh, this is bad, I don't like it. It's sort of like saying 
How do I get my kid to like getting a vaccine shot, for example? Well, it's an inherently scary situation. It's not, we know it's fine, right? We know scientifically the kid is fine, but the kid doesn't know that, right? <laughs> the kid is like, I don't know this person. They're putting something in my arm. Everyone seems tense. This room is very sterile and I don't, there's no toys around. I just want to get out of here. So, you know, that can be very much the experience of sitting on Santa's lap. I, I don't like where I am. There's, there's all these crowds of people. Everyone's looking at me. There's this big, you know, to us, Santa Claus is this, you know, roly-poly, happy, jolly, goodness person, at least for the most of us, that's our association. To a child, they might have never seen Santa before, at least in the flesh. And so for them, it's just like large stranger in a gigantic red outfit sitting on a huge chair with weird small people standing around them and everyone's yelling at me to sit on it. Why in the world do I have to sit on this creep's lap? I don't know this person. I've never been forced to sit on anyone's lap that I didn't want to. Why is this happening right now? So, you know, it, it makes sense. Uh, and that's just, you know, there's probably individual stories we could tell, you know, case by case basis, but that's my answer to that. All right. Julia says, what is your opinion of the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, in light of the bashing it's gotten from the Me Too era mentalities? Yeah, I, I've given this a lot of thought over the last few years because I've heard this song for a long time. And at a certain point, when you become aware of rape culture and sexism, you start to listen to this song and the lyrics. You're just like, yeah, this song is pretty bad. Well, here's the thing. So in the olden times, not too long ago, we had a different culture that we are basically emerging out of right now, kind of. We're still kind of in it, but we're definitely more aware of, of it. You know, as an example, when I saw 16 Candles or, yeah, 16 Candles, uh, in the 80s, and when I rewatched it in the 90s, it didn't occur to me that Michael Anthony Hall's character, the nerd, rapes this woman, but he does. And, and through our 2020 eyes, we look at this at this scene. If you know Sixteen Candles, uh, she she essentially this woman, uh, this older high school girl, gets extremely intoxicated on substances, and she is tricked into believing that the nerd is her boyfriend and the nerd has sex with her. And then the next morning they wake up, they're like, did we have sex? And she's like, she's like, yeah, I think we did have sex. And then she's like, yeah, and I think I kind of enjoyed it, which is just ridiculous. Imagine waking up in the morning and you were essentially date raped and drugged. You would not be happy about that, right? So and for us to watch that, so one that was written into a very popular script by a very popular writer in the 80s, and it seemed fine. Uh, and to our eyes today, we're like, whoa, so why do we see it differently? Well, it's the same with Baby, It's Cold Outside. When this song was written, I'm guessing it was like the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, a long time ago. And essentially what the song, the premise of the song is you have this woman that is saying, I've got to go, it's late. And the guy is saying, but it's cold outside and you should stay and you should have another drink. And hey, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let you go and I'm going to stand in your way. And she's like, you know, you should get out of my way. No, I'm not going to. You are trapped in my house. And then the woman's like, I'm going to call the cop. You know, it, it gets pretty I'm exaggerating, but it gets pretty bad. 
So on one hand, absolutely, 100%, we should look at that song through critical eyes. We should understand it's not a, in, you know, by the nature of your question, I'm guessing you're, you're not excited about the criticism of Baby It's Cold Outside. I don't know. But we should be able to look at this song and say, yeah, this is emblematic of a culture that still exists today, but was very much the mainstream back then. And this is part of the problem. The, the attitude that resulted in this song is what leads to women being disempowered, to women being sexually assaulted, to men being taught that they can assault women because they're men and, you know, they want to assault women or this sort of thing. Uh, and it's not just women. Anyway, point is, is it's a misogynistic, sexist culture. And from that culture, this sort of song can exist without any kind of pushback when the song was popular. Okay. And so we can absolutely say that. And it's completely rational and anyone who understands anything about feminism or sexism or this song can agree on that. On the other hand, this the, the thing that I think is lost to history is the way in which people dated back in the old days. It's it's tempting to look back at this song, Baby It's Cold Outside, and and see it as a sexist song. And it is. But it's tempting to only see it from the man's power side of just like, wow, you know, this man is essentially trapping this woman. That's awful. Well, that assumes that the woman does not want to be trapped. And let me explain. <laughs> okay. So on one hand, so there, let's just categorize it. There's two categories. One category is that there were some women who were absolutely being trapped and by this attitude and are continuing to being trapped today by this attitude of like, uh, I have power over you. Okay. I went over all that, but in the olden times and to some extent today, women and girls are taught that in order to be a good lady, a good girl, they cannot want to have sex that in order for them to be respected, they have to be very shy and very, uh, standoffish. And at the last moment, that's when they hand themselves over. When the guy just completely persists, that's when you let them uh, have you, so to speak, whether it's relationally or sexually or something like that. Now, we I don't recommend that as the cultural norm <laughs> because it uh, takes all the power and assertiveness and the choice away from women. But in the olden times, that was what was being taught to girls. And so the way that girls commonly would relate, you know, if, if you were a, a young woman or a woman of any age, for that matter, uh, in the olden times, and you liked a guy, you couldn't say you liked him. You couldn't walk up to him and say, hey, baby, you know, it's cold outside. Let's stay. You, know, you couldn't do that. If you did, you were a terrible, unladylike slut and no guy would like you. Now, that's not necessarily true, of course, but that was what was being strongly taught women at the time and still to this day to a lesser extent. And so if you were a woman and you had romantic and sexual needs, which most people have, how would you get your sexual and romantic needs met? Well, you had to attract a guy and he was supposed to play his role. 
he's supposed to play his role of entrapping you. And you are supposed to play the role of someone who is trying to get away, but secretly you kind of want to get trapped because you have sexual and romantic needs just like the dude does. And both people have to play their role because both people are taught this opposite message of the dude you got to chase and you are entitled and the women you are, you, you should, you should always run away and allow yourself to be caught because that's the only way you can preserve your, ch- your chastity and your purity and your goodness. So when you hear this song, Baby It's Cold Outside, you absolutely hear the misogyny and the control and the power and the sexism. But the other thing that I hear when I hear this song is, is that woman trying to get away? Because it sounds like it. That's, that's, the, that's the overt thing. Or does she want him to chase and she's trying to preserve her purity and she's staying and she, and she appreciates him putting the pressure on because she has sexual and romantic needs too. This is why we should move away from this model because it does it. What it leads to is sexual assault and doesn't allow women their own agency. But back then women were taught not only that they didn't have agency, but that basically they were completely disgusting if they acted like they wanted, you know, in the song, if, if it was a love song or something and the woman said, you know, the, the guy's like, hey, you know, do you want to stay? And the, in the first line, the woman's like, sure, I, I'd love to make out with you and maybe go to bed with you tonight. Uh, the song would be over. The guy would be like, ew, gross. Or at least society would be like, ew, gross. Because that's, you know, that was the ideal back then. So, uh, so when you say, Julia, you know, what's my opinion of the song? That's my opinion of the song. Um, is that it's pretty complex and it represents the activity of people raised in a culture that hopefully we will never go back to and we will continually move away from. (laughs) Um, And it deserves all the bashing, in my opinion, because when we normalize these sorts of artistic expressions – we normalize the underlying culture that it's based on. Now, can you enjoy the song, Julia, if you like it? You know, you just like the song and you understand that women have power and you understand that men should not assume that they have the entitlement to trap women inside a house when it's cold outside. Uh, yeah, you, you, you know, you could enjoy this song, but in the same way that you could enjoy watching the Huxtables and uh, and understand that uh, you know Bill Cosby allegedly is a is a you know terrible human being. In the same way that you could enjoy watching O.J. Simpson movies and understand that something horrible could have happened in his personal life. In the same way that you could enjoy a Woody Allen movie and understand that there's some terrible things there. In the same way that you could un- you could love a Harvey Weinstein produced movie and still understand that. He did some terrible things. But to just take the song and say, hey, you know, what's wrong with this song? I love this song when I grew up without looking at it critically, I think, is is a little bit dangerous, honestly. But it doesn't we don't have to you don't have to ruin it. You know, you you can listen to it. <laughs> if that, if that, I don't know if that's what you're saying, Julia. 
show says, is this really the merriest time of the year? Is there any research one way or the other? If there isn't, what would your guess be? Um, is it supposed to be the merriest time of the year? I, I don't think I've ever heard. I mean, I guess that seems possible that's said, but I don't hear that in my neck of the woods. People don't say, yeah, Christmas, the merriest time of the year. I mean, they certainly, I guess maybe they act like, anyway, uh, any research one way or the other? Yeah, I'm guessing there is, but uh, I, I I don't know of it. Um, and, you know, what would my guess be? What would my guess be about the merriest time of the year? Well, I get a lot of questions around this, and there's a lot of myths out there. And like I was saying earlier, suicide is actually, if there's a little bit of a bump, it's in the spring. Whenever we look at happiness, it's a hard thing to measure. You know, how do you measure happiness? You just ask people, like, how happy are you? You know, it's a, it's a hard thing to know if one person's 9 out of 10 is the same as someone else's 9 out of 10. But whenever I uh, see the research on trends that happen throughout the year, uh, and when I treat my clients who have varying levels of happiness and sadness throughout the year, I find that the time of the year has very little to do with the overall happiness level and sadness level of human beings. Can people be depressed in the summer? Yes. <laughs> if you suffer from depression, you've likely been depressed throughout summers. Now, can some moods be de- dependent on seasons? Yes. But sometimes it's opposite. Sometimes people have more depression in the summer and less depression in the winter. When we talk about seasonal, seasonal affective, we're not talking about necessarily winter time being bad for people. It certainly can, but uh, people. But it, so, the very short answer I'll say is that I have found that if you're generally happy, you're happy all year round. And if you're generally in despair, then you're generally in despair all year round. And the narrative that the time of the year has something to do with it is a little overblown. Can it have something to do with it? Sure. But usually it doesn't. All right, let's go to the YouTube questions. I can't neglect the YouTube questions. And by the way, I'm skipping over some questions because I feel like I've already answered them. So if I didn't get to your question, it's because I thought, well, I think I've already answered them. All right, here's a question right up my alley from Brandy on YouTube. It says, how do you deal with being triangulated between your parents and their issues when you're their only child? Okay, so you're the only child, you're going home for the holidays, and you often are triangulated between your parents and their issues. So I assume your parents have conflict and they both confide in you and you feel very triangulated. Okay, this is a classic triangulation conundrum. And I don't know the answer to your question, Brandy, because I can never be able to you know, directly advise people, but I can talk generally about triangulation and and how other people have found their way to more degrees of differentiation and happiness. And here are some things to do. One is to whenever your mom tells you something, you go straight to your dad and you tell your dad what your mom says. And whenever your dad comes to you and says you something, you go, you, you just go, huh, interesting. And then you just go to your mom. You're like, mom, did you know that dad thinks that you're a jerk face because of last night? So this is what Bowen did. So Murray Bowen invented the field of, of you know, Bowenian therapy and triangulation included. And that's what he did with his family. His family was pretty enmeshed. 
and he experimented on himself and his family. He, he, he saw a lot of triangulation in his family and he tried to get out of it personally. And what he did some of the time was just that. He just would, he just would immediately tell the other person. What this does is it forces the two individuals to either deal with their conflict directly or it forces them to try and get someone else other than you because you are no longer playing the game. Now, that can be a pretty drastic move, right, of just like telling the other person. Uh, but, you know, you could tell your parents, by the way, I'm no longer going to keep secrets because I don't like being pulled in between the two of you. And so I'm just going to tell you that everything you tell me about dad, I'm probably just going to tell him because honestly, I feel like you should be talking with him about this. The other thing you can do is to differentiate and sort of distance yourself as you're being triangulated. And this is a, this is a much less, uh, you know, difficult thing to achieve. So your, your mom's telling you a story about dad. It's like, oh, you wouldn't believe what dad did, da, 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 da. And in your mind, you could, you could be like, yeah, not my problem. And, I, you know, I'll nod my head and I'll, I'll listen. But you know what? I, I really just don't care <laughs> because this is between the two of them. I mean, I hope that the two of them work this out. But you know what? I, I feel like I've done everything I can. And they're grown adults. They should they should be able to talk to each other. And so I'm not going to offer any advice and, you know, maybe I'll provide some minor validation, but, but I'm just not going to get involved because, you know, frankly, it's just not my problem. And by doing that, one, you preserve your own sanity through it all. And two, you probably give a message subtly that you're not super invested in the problem that, you know, you'll listen but you're not going to get wrapped up in it. Part of the reason why they triangulate you probably is because you get wrapped up in it, which is hard not to. But if you resist the urge to get wrapped up in it, then one, they stop sort of pressuring you because they know they're not going to get you to take the bait. But also, they might stop triangulating you altogether because you're not playing the game. So those are, those are two things. The third thing is probably the most mature thing to do, which is just to tell your parents, look, I don't like being roped into your problems. The two of you need to go to therapy, and I'm sort of done being your therapist. I just want to come home, hang out with the two of you. I understand you, you two have problems, but I feel like it's a lot of pressure to put on me as your kid. And you've been doing it me, you've been doing this to me my whole life. And I want to be close to you. But the fact that you sort of wrote me into your conflict all the time, it makes it hard for me to want to spend time with you at all. And I don't like that. I want to spend time with you, but I don't want to, I don't want it to be ruined with this notion that I'm somehow your couple's therapist, you know? So I love you. I care about you, but you know, I, I want to change the way we interact. You know, that's, that's a very mature thing you can say. All right. Nora says, how do you deal with gift giving obligations? My partner and I spend more than we planned to this year because we bought gifts just because someone had bought gifts for us. I personally am not a big Christmas person and I wouldn't give or receive gifts if it were up to me, but I don't know how to navigate telling people. Okay, so here's what you do. And actually, I dealt with this in my own family. So I love my family, but I have a large family. There's a lot of kids, there's a lot of grandkids, there's a lot of cousins. And when we were younger, uh, the gift giving process was attainable because there weren't as many people. Now it's like exponentially larger groups of people in my family. 
And so I was getting tired of having to spend, you know, I was working full time. And actually at the time I might've been working like 70 hours a week. It was when I was trying to pay off my student loan debt and I was poor as all get out. And uh, so not only did I not have the time and this is before the internet. So you actually had to go to the mall and like, I remember I, I, I would go to the mall with a pad and paper and I would write down all the ideas that I had, you know, I'd be like, okay, I got to get a gift for uncle so-and-so and I got to get a gift for my sister. And I'd write down all these various ideas. And then after I did that for the span of what seemed like weeks after, you know, doing all this research, then I'd sit down and I'd be like, well, I only have $185. So how do I buy a, a, you know, a gift for everyone I'm supposed to buy a gift for while staying under $185? I, I remember having, it was probably less than $185. It was probably like literally like $65 that I would have available to spend on Christmas gifts. And at a certain point, you know, after years of doing this, I was like, this has got to stop. You know, at some point, this has to stop because if we don't, because, you know, the nieces and nephews, they're all going to have kids themselves, you know. If we don't stop this, it's like some weird multi, it's, you know, an, a multi-level marketing scheme where like, uh, the, except it's reversed, where if you're at the top, you're expected to get a gift for all the younger people and all the younger people get all the gifts. Anyway, so I sat everyone in my family down and I was just like, we've got to change our system because we're, we shouldn't be expected to give all the gifts to all of our adult uh family members. There's a lot of kids. And so, so there was some pushback, you know, especially from my mom. She, as I was saying earlier, she loves buying gifts. And so a big part for her was like, so you're saying I can't get you a gift anymore? Cause I don't want that, you know? And so I said, yeah, well, we have to do this. It's the rational way. And so I, so I set this rule in my family and I said, once you are older than 25, then you enter the adult world because, you know, you're in college and stuff. And I think it was like the age of my brother at the time. Anyway, the point is, is that I, I, we said this rule in my family where once you're 26, you now are in the adult category and you have to get a gift, not have to, but, you know, it's expected you're going to gift, give it, get a gift for all the people 25 and younger. So all the kids and nieces and nephews and grandkids. But... Once you're 26 and older, you only have to get a gift for one, and we drew out of a hat, one of the other adults in the family. So if I drew my sister, then I would give it, get a gift for my sister, but I wouldn't have to give a gift to my brother or my other brother or my mom or my dad or my uncle or my cousin or, you know, and we all picked a, a gift, you know, a, a name from a hat. And you always wanted my mom to draw you because she always got you the best things anyway. Um, and this worked out really well. This really reduced the pressure because buying gifts for kids is pretty easy, right? Especially young kids because all they want is just like toys. And so – and toys can be pretty cheap. And so uh, it, it really made things a lot easier. Um, so that's what I did. But what you're talking about, Nora, is you don't like giving gifts to anyone. <laughs> so the reason why I was telling that story is – Unless you grab the situation by the horns and make it yours, you'll always be dealing with this bad feeling. And so what I recommend people do is what I've been recommending throughout this episode 
is make an assessment, take an inventory of yourself. What do you want? What, what's the lifestyle you want to live? Then go to everyone and say, this is what I want to do. And I still love you. <laughs> I still, if, now, if you love them, you know, I, let's just assume you do love your family, but you just don't like gifts. You say, I love you guys. I, I want to spend time with you, but I've just never been into the gift thing. And I don't, I don't want to receive any gifts and I don't want to give any gifts. It's annoying to me. I don't want you to be obligated to buy me a gift and I don't have the time or the money to get you anything. You know, just buy your own stuff. <laughs> I'll get my stuff. You buy your, you know, and, but say that you're sorry and say that you still want to be connected to them because when you cut them off from the gift process, they're likely to receive it as a rejection of them or of the family. And so if, if you reassure them that that's not the case, then, you know, they'll, they'll likely be cool with it. But, but you might get some pushback. You know, I, I have a pretty loving family and my mom gave pushback. She's like, I don't like this idea. I, in fact, my mom would break the rule. She would often just get gifts for everyone anyway. And, and I, I think me and my siblings just let her do that. <laughs> We're just like, fine. You know, even though I didn't get mom a gift, she got us a gift. And, you know, you just roll with the punches, but, but make sure that you, it sounds like you know what you want, Nora, and you deserve to be able to do that. You know, but don't just uh, tiptoe around it and resent everyone. You know, give people a chance. Tell tell them all. Write them a letter. Tell them all individually. Tell them as a group, or you know, but but do that because you deserve it. You know, you deserve to have that life that you want. All right, Jocelyn says, how to not let your negative feelings about the holidays impact the feelings your child has about them. I want my son to see the magic and feel the love of these times, but this time of the year is very hard for me for various reasons. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know exactly the extent of the things you're going through, Jocelyn, but obviously going to therapy would, you know, you deserve that. I, I think the primary thing is that the holidays are hard for you and you deserve to be taken care of and you deserve to heal from those issues. That's number one. Number two, you're thinking, well, you know, I don't want to ruin it for my son. You know, I don't want to ruin it for my kids. Uh, yeah, I mean, do what you can. Uh, you know, fake it till you make it kind of a thing if you want to. But honestly, it's not the end of the world if your kids don't have a ton of the magic times around the holidays. It, there are plenty of happy people in the world who don't care at all about the holidays. So... It, it can be a little overwhelming. You know, there, it, it seems like, oh, Christmas is everywhere. And, you know, I'm, I'm making a whole episode about Christmas. I don't think I've ever done this, by the way. <laughs> um, I just have the time to do it this time. But it's, uh, it's you know, it, if your kid somehow emerges from childhood with like some mild positive experiences with the holidays, but not as positive as as their peers – that's, you know, that's, you didn't do a bad job as a parent. <laughs> uh, Christina says, could you please give, give a PSA that when giving a gift from Santa, that it not be an expensive iPad or another item that many other families cannot afford, as this can make a child from a less wealthy family wonder what is wrong with them as Santa didn't bring them such an expensive gift. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated matter, of course. And 
parents should be free to give their kids what they want to give from Santa. The the broader question or the broader problem here is classism and uh, income inequality and how it is exemplified perhaps over the holidays. So for all of us to think about how we vote, to think about how we pressure our politicians to have certain kinds of policies around in income inequality, this sort of thing is really the the more important issue besides Christmas gift giving. But perhaps it is something to think about. If you come from a middle class or above family and you are giving your kids elaborate gifts that you think about what messages you're sending to your kids, what messages you're sending to those around you, what messages your kids will give to their classmates or whatever. And maybe it's a conversation you have with your kids around uh, classism and income inequality that you say, look, so, you know, you got a lot of stuff for Christmas this year. I just want you to take note of that. (laughs) So... I was getting screwed up as I was talking because I just got a text from Bob and I was sort of glancing down at it and he said that uh, Santa left something at my at my front door and he must have just dropped off a Christmas present for me at the front door. I was wondering what my dog was barking at so so much, but um, so Bob, as y'all know from the podcast, he just he just drove by and left me a, a gift and now I feel terrible because I didn't I didn't bring a gift over for him. I should I should do something. <laughs> And I want to. I don't feel obligated. I absolutely want to. Um, but maybe you have a conversation with your kids about, look, you got an iPad for Christmas, and you, you know, you should, you know, you should play with it. And you should have it. And you should enjoy it. But understand that some of your classmates at school come from families where uh, they don't have that kind of money. And if you flaunt this gift, it will make them feel bad. Maybe I don't know. And so, you know, just be a little modest about it and don't don't brag about it. And if other people ask you what you got, just think about the things that you talk about with other people. Just just be mindful of that because some people, they don't have as much and it might make them feel lesser than if you if you brag, particularly if you brag about the things that you have. Of course, this applies to social media and all the other things. And so. Um, but yeah, to, to me, this is a to, to blame a parent, for example. You know, you have a middle class parent. They work really hard, and they love Christmas, and they like to splurge on Christmas, like the way my parents did. And they like to spoil their kids with a lot of material items that their kids want. And then they like to post on social media. You know, like my kid really enjoys his iPad or whatever. Uh, I don't think that we should blame those parents for the problems of our society. We shouldn't blame those parents for the problems of classism and the way that our the people in power continue to keep the people in power and to increase their power. We are living in a society that the income inequality is getting worse, even though we're becoming wealthier. Our country is wealthier, and uh, the people at the bottom are not benefiting. Only the people at the top, for the most part. And so, I mean, it's complicated when you talk about benefit. But point is, is that we have a problem for sure. And I don't know if we should target people on social media if they happen to get their kid an iPad. I get, I get it. 
but I don't. That's not the solution to the problem. Is is not to gift shame other people. I think we need to vote differently, raise awareness of of what we want as a population. Which, by the way, when you actually survey people, the vast majority of people want, even rich people, want there to be much less income inequality, and the politicians refuse to abide by. The Republican and Democrat wish, by the way, this is not a Democrat Republican wish. It's I can't remember the exact stats. So something nine, over ninety percent of people in the United States would want there to be a model of income distribution that was much flatter than it is. And why won't the politicians abide? You just have to ask yourself that question. You know, I think the answer is pretty obvious. And so, what we need to do as the people is to speak out and to vote and to make it known that we don't want that anymore and that we want solutions that other societies are currently using and it's working. And there's all sorts of uh, problems that emerge when you have increased inequality that people feel more hopeless because they they see their struggles and they, they know their struggles and they look at these ultra-rich people and they're just thinking – uh, you know, and you see, you see more racism, you see more sexism in societies like this. You see more violence and more political problems. So it, it's a, it's a, it's something we need to change. Anyway, James says, how can we communicate with family members who are being radicalized with misinformation online? Yeah, I feel like I talked about this a couple hours ago. <laughs> I've been talking for so long, but the again. You have to slow down and say, what's my goal? Is my goal to change their mind? Is my goal to get through it without any problems? Is my goal to shut them down because they deserve it? Is my goal to show everyone else that I'm not going to let that just fly by and I'm going to push back on that? What's your goal? Because once you know your goal, then you know generally what to, what to do. But a lot of people just kind of face these situations. They're just like, you know, how do I deal with this? And and uh, for some of us, we might have a goal of, you know, what I don't want to get into it with them. I'm not. I'm not going to change their mind. So if that's the case, then maybe you don't do anything. Maybe you're just like, uh huh. You just nod your head. You're like, okay, interesting. Anyway, pass the potatoes. All right. Next question from Clarice. They say, why is there such a big why is there such big pressure to be dating or seeing someone during Christmas time? Is that true? Are people being pressured to not be single during Christmas time? Uh, when I was single many years ago, I don't remember that pressure, honestly. Maybe it's a guy thing. I don't know. Uh, why is there such a big deal? Well, if there is a big deal, it's probably because of culture and all the Christmas movies that have to do with romance. <laughs> which is a weird combo. I mean, I think I think what maybe if I was going this is total speculation. But I think that Christmas time brings out the traditionalist in all of us and we all want that cozy traditional uh childhood experience or at least a lot of us do. And I think that there's nothing more traditional than a good rom-com or a good romantic story. And so I think – and of course, New Year's Eve is associated with kissing someone. So you, you got to have that special someone to kiss on New Year's Eve, that sort of thing. 
All right. Well, like I said, I didn't get to all your questions because some of them were repeats or at least close enough to a previous question. But I got to all the questions and I've been talking for over two hours. But Colin has added these questions. If you don't know Colin, he is now working for the podcast and he does a lot of social media stuff. And he actually compiled this whole list. And so he added some brain desserts at the end. <laughs> so we had the stocking stuffers at the beginning. And he has these desserts at the end. So let, there's a lot of them. So let, I don't know. This is kind of fun. What is a memorable gift opening moment from your childhood? A mem- so many. <laughs> there's so many memorable gift gift opening moments that I had from my childhood. I remember my dad would always get me really good albums. We had you know records, record player back then. And so I remember getting Black Celebration by... Depeche Mode. I remember getting Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me by The Cure. I remember getting albums from all my childhood, <laughs> just various different albums. But uh, other gift opening, I remember early in my life, I was given this like bazooka gun that had all these different contraptions on it. And it had a, it had a, you know, a sight on it. And I don't know, I just loved this this big blue bazooka gun that I had. <laughs> if you were served a three-course holiday meal, what would you want for each of those? Three-course – so assuming that it's just like three things, okay? Span musubi, of course. Uh, three-course holiday meal. I like a good ham, a good hunk of ham. Sorry to you vegans out there. But – if, but it has to be good. It has to be juicy and thick and not processed. So I'll say that. Sorry, vegans. And then for the third thing, my mouth is watering. Um, third thing, well, I've been craving those Hawaiian rolls, you know, those real simple rolls, bread rolls that you heat up and you put butter in them. So that's I'll say that. What is a Christmas song that makes you cringe? Well, I, you know, I told you, Colin, that I love all Christmas things, and there's really not. But I said earlier that the ironically, the Paul McCartney Christmas song makes me cringe as soon as I hear that. I just, I just ugh. what is the coolest gift you ever gave someone? The coolest gift I ever gave someone. You know, that's a harder thing to remember, right? Because I think you usually remember the gifts you get and not necessarily the gifts you give. Coolest gift I ever gave someone. Well, it's not cool. I'll tell you a notable gift. So when I was in high school, I sort of fancied myself a writer uh, midway through high school. By late high school, I realized I didn't have any talent. But about midway through high school, like 10th grade, I still thought of myself as like a, a not a talented writer, but someone who could write. And I wrote my parents poems, and I still have them, and they are horrendous, particularly the one I wrote for my dad. And I thought, okay, I've written this poem, and I spent a lot of time on it because, you know, poems weren't very easy for me. I could write, like, random stuff, but poems that rhymed and whatnot, that was a little harder. And so I spent a lot of time on them. And they're terrible poems. They're just awful. But I crumpled them up. You know, keep in mind I'm 15 years old. I crumple it up into a ball, and then I wrapped it in tape and 
just random stuff. I was kind of into random stuff when I was a kid, <laughs> just like messy things. I don't know why. But anyway, so my parents were given this gift from me that's just this ball of essentially garbage. And then in the middle was the the main piece of garbage, which they unfurled and they read this poem. And I remember them just being like, huh? <laughs> they, of course, they were being nice about it, but I remember thinking I would get more of a response from them than I got. But, you know, again, reading the poem, it's, it's just an awful, awful part. And to this day, I'll apologize to my parents about that and various other things, stupid things I did as a teenager. My my parents are always like, no, we loved it. You know, they're, And I think they honestly believe that because they're honestly nice people. Uh, Colin asks, what is a helpful phrase or quote that comes to mind when you are stressed? Oh, that's a good question, Colin. What's a helpful phrase or quote that comes to mind when you are stressed? Well, this was happening to me earlier today. I am dealing with – I don't want to bore people with the details, but there's a lot of logistical things to this podcast that I have to take care of. You know, it might feel like from your end, it's like all fun and games where I just answer questions and I have conversations with my friends about the Mandalorian. And it certainly can be those things. It is those things. But there's all this logistical crap on the back end that really I do not like dealing with. Just so many administrative things and, um, you know, internet things and legal things. And it's just never ending. And every time I feel like I'm cresting the hill, I see a bigger hill behind that hill. And I was getting stressed out and I was getting real worked up and I didn't like it. And I was, I was, I was feeling overwhelmed and I was sort of ranting and raving (laughs) at my wife as we were walking the dogs And at a certain point, I just said, okay, what would I tell myself if I was my own therapist? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, okay, what would I say? I would say, yeah, you're stressed out. I hear that. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Now, as a therapist, I don't think I would say that to a client, but – I don't know. That was just the first thing that popped in my head and it kind of helped. It sort of, it was like, okay, Kirk, wham, wham, wham. <laughs> You're stressed out about things. Fine. It makes sense. Okay. But is the answer to just reject the whole ball of wax and to just say, I give up? Or are you going to just figure out what to do? And I, and I And I said out loud to myself, I said, well, maybe I just need to sit down and really dedicate some time to familiarizing myself with the logistical landscape and maybe like writing it all down. Maybe if I, if I felt like I was in control of this process, I could make it mine. I feel like I'm, I think I was, I didn't like it and I was getting rid of it. I was hoping to get rid of it. I was hoping it would go away, but it's not going to go away. And I, maybe I just have to accept it and map it all out and invite it into my life. I, I, I don't remember who told me this, but uh, it was, I don't know, 20 years ago or so that when you're cold and you don't like it, you know, you didn't wear a, a big enough jacket and you're, you're kind of cold 
And there are two different approaches. One is to just resist the cold. It's like, I don't like the cold. I don't like the cold. And this one person uh, said, you just got to eat the cold. Just eat it. And by that, what they were meaning was, you're cold and it's just going to happen. And and to resist the cold is to just double your suffering. Yeah, you're cold and it sucks, but eat it. And I, I don't know. So that's what I tell myself, Colin, when I'm stressed. What part of your work environment is your favorite? Well, now we're getting now we're getting personal, Colin. What part of my work environment is my favorite? My work environment, like physical environment, because I pretty much work from one spot, which is my office chair. <laughs> uh, but what part of my work environment? Uh, well, I like I like working with my wife a lot. She she has good things to say, and uh, it's just nice. We'll go on a a lot of – let's say, I don't know, a third of the time that we're going on a walk with the dogs, the whole time we're just talking about podcast stuff, you know, about upcoming shows or things that we have plans for or what should we schedule or what kind of merch should we do or, you know, different YouTube doodads we can have, (laughs) you know, that kind of – so I think that's my favorite. If you could listen to any room in the world, which would it be? If you could listen to – oh, if you can listen in on any room in the world. My goodness, Colin, that is a cool question. If you could listen in on any room in the world, which could it be? Listen in. So this would have to be a room that I couldn't imagine what is happening, right, and that I would want to hear. Because, you know, of course, you think about like the Pope talking candidly or something. <laughs> but I don't know. That doesn't really interest me. Um, the White House behind the scenes. <laughs> Mostly out of curiosity of what is happening where no one can hear them. That, that That's what I'll say. That. What is the one thing you own that you wish you didn't? What is the one thing you own that you wish you didn't? That is a hilarious question. I get rid of things so fast. In fact, uh, I'm getting rid of so many books right now because I just suddenly had this feeling of, I have too many books. I'm getting rid of like half or I don't know, a third of my books, which is like hundreds of books. I, I have so many books, which is probably why I need to get rid of some, but so the one thing that I own that I wish I didn't, I usually that usually only lasts only lasts like a week because I, I get rid of stuff real fast. I'm one of the fastest get ridder uh, on the planet. I'll throw stuff away. I'll take huge trips to the secondhand store. Furniture, I love getting rid of things. It just really makes me feel good. I don't know if it's because I'm Japanese and I have a little Marie Kondo in me. I don't know. But but what's one thing that I own that I wish I didn't? Own that I wish I didn't. Own that I wish I didn't. I don't know. There's probably nothing in there, right? Um, Oh, maybe something that I bought and now I'm kind of stuck with because you can't really get rid of it. Huh. What would I own that I wish I didn't have? I mean, the first thing I think of is like some of the musical instruments I've bought over the years. And it feels kind of stupid to let go of them because at some point I might want them but I kind of wish I hadn't bought them. I have a lot of musical equipment (laughs) and I've gotten rid of a lot of it. 
some of it I've actually bought back. Like I have a base right now that I bought years ago and then I thought I didn't need it anymore and I sold it and then I was like, where's my base? And I bought it again. That's <laughs> kind of a stupid thing to do. But uh, what is one place you shop that might surprise people? What is one place you shop that might surprise people? Uh, music stores. I love music stores. I love guitar stores. I love piano stores. I love uh, drum stores. I love any just any musical equipment. Anytime I'm with my wife, we're traveling, we're in town. I cannot not walk into a music store and just fiddle with stuff. What kind of holiday shopper are you? Black Friday, Christmas Eve, year-long hoarding? <laughs> Um, I am a extremely organized person, and so uh, I don't do Black Friday. I don't really understand. I don't have that mindset. I've never been like a coupon person. I've always figured uh, that things would work out in the end, which isn't probably the best thing to do. But uh, in the past 10 years, I actually will make a calendar reminder to myself at a certain point to – begin the Christmas shopping and it's, it's months before Christmas and I have a to-do list and I'll keep track of it all there. And I have a whole system where I, you know, for certain people I have to, I have to ask like, okay, you know, for little Johnny, what does he want this year? You know, cause he's five. Does that mean his preferences have changed? And so I have a whole system and I like to do it way in advance cause I hate I hate being pressured. I hate thing. I hate waiting for things at the last minute. I I, I really do not like that. Um, years ago, like twenty years ago, I was so overworked that I was a, a last minute kind of person. <laughs> like literally Christmas Eve, I remember. But I spend a lot of my time with time management, and if I'm ever behind the eight ball time wise. I consider that a massive failure on my part. I consider it, it's like, Kirk, you have really let yourself down here because I just hate that feeling. I hate, I mean, it, there's so many bad things about feeling like a time crunch, especially around something that you're supposed to enjoy. Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy, or at least it's supposed to be a time of what you want to do. <laughs> and I don't want to feel obligated at the last minute to like, crap, I got to get something. I want to enjoy it. I want to be like, okay, let me let me give two months to think about, like, what do I want to give that person? Let me think about it. I like to luxuriate. I like that process. I like to think about it. I like to imagine, okay, what do they need, you know, and, and what do they want? What would be kind of special to them? And uh, because, you know, I just it, – it's supposed to be a good thing. And to wait till the last minute – now, I also spend a lot of my time figuring out my career such that it gives me that flexibility. Like with the podcast now, I can do the podcast pretty much whenever I want to, right? Uh, there's no obligation there. And so uh, in the past when I had like a nine to five and then a commute and then a, you know, a weekend job as well, like you're just kind of locked in you don't really have the time, you know, and you have all the chores that you got to do when you get home. And so, um, so I've I've sort of figured out, you know, I work from home. My practice is from home. As a professor, even before the lockdown, I did a lot of work from home. And so when you work from home, it, it just affords you a lot of time. Uh, even when I worked at the uh, university before the lockdown, 
uh, I used to live across the street from the university. <laughs> so my commute was walking across the street. Anyway, um, and I did that partially because I thought about time management. I hate the idea of commuting like, a, you know, 10% of my life. It just seems like a complete waste of time. And so for me, I, I every little bit counts, which gives me extra time to luxuriate in the the things I want to luxuriate in. And one of the things I like to luxuriate in is gift giving anyway. Colin asks, what is your least favorite holiday side dish? Least favorite holiday side dish. Well, I'm a vacuum cleaner, so I love everything. And when I go to, you know, potluck dinners, I I walk away completely stuffed because I want to eat everything. (laughs) And so – and I've always been that way. And everyone in my family is that way. Uh, We were raised that way. I think part of it was the way we were raised and also that when you're you're Japanese and white, you have to deal with a lot of variable food things. And so you just end up learning, look, everything can be good if you just believe it's good. (laughs) (laughs) But if there's the least favorite side dish at Christmas time – would you know what? I'm going to say something that is terrible for Japanese American. I'm going to say rice. So, in my family, we ate uh, Japanese what you'd call sticky rice, but we just called it gohan, which is the Japanese word for it. But it's also the word for meal, I think. Anyway, we ate Japanese sticky rice all the time, every day, every meal, huge amounts. Not just a little bowl, a huge plateful of rice. We would have spaghetti and meatballs on a huge bed of sticky rice. Just imagine that. That's a very Japanese American thing to do. If you've ever been to a Hawaiian restaurant, you've had loco moco. Uh, often it's just like a huge amount of rice. And then, uh, yeah, anyway, point is, is lots of rice. And as I've gotten older, you know, I appreciate rice, but I don't want to I feel like rice is kind of a filler thing. And when I'm at a holiday dinner, there's usually like a lot of tasty things and I don't want to stuff my stomach with extra rice. (laughs) And uh, to say such a thing in my family is absolutely sacrilegious because to reject sticky rice as a Japanese American is, uh, is uncool. Uh, describe the ugliest Christmas ornament you've ever seen. Oh, well, that's easy. I have a giant slug, a yellow slug ornament on the backside of my uh, – we have an office tree in a in a living room tree, and my office tree has a big giant slug. And I think it was either given to me or I bought it. I don't remember which. It's probably given to me. I'm not sure. But so in the Northwest, we have a lot of slugs, and – I grew up with a lot of slugs. As a kid, I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, and there were a lot of trees and a lot of moist areas and a lot of slugs. And so it's a really ugly Christmas ornament, but I love it. If you could be a character in a holiday movie, which would it be and why? A holiday movie. What character would I be? That is a complicated question. I mean, I guess the stop motion Santa Claus seems like a pretty good storyline, and the adventures that it's an old, like a, you know, it's the one from the you know, you everyone knows of the Rudolph stop motion, but there's a very similar one that is for Santa, a young Santa who becomes Santa, and I like that one. Or wait, no, it has to be a 
it has to be Charlie Brown world. So of course it's Schroeder. Schroeder, he just kills it on the piano and he's super cool. So yeah, that's my answer. Final answer, Schroeder is who I'd want to be. Uh, what characteristic is most important to you and coworkers? Uh, dependability is my most important characteristic. I cannot stand it when I'm working with someone that I cannot depend on. And by dependability, I mean if someone, you know, if I ask someone to do something, if they don't want to do it, they just tell me, uh, can't do that, not going to do it. I cannot tell you how many times I have worked with people in my various jobs, but, you know, I'm going to mostly talk about my university, where I need something to get my job done so that my students can not suffer, you know, like usually the things that I'm doing, I'm trying to help my students out. And if I have someone who is not even returning my emails or phone calls or anything, it drives me bonkers. Because what are you supposed to do? They're the only ones that can provide you with this. So you're just stuck. You're you're in a you're trapped in a in a bubble that they've created for you. You know, you can you can't move forward and and the thing is is half the time it would be an issue that involves students. And I just I'm always just like you work at a university, don't you care <laughs> about the well being of the students? Anyway, it, it just would drive me crazy. So dependability and punctuality. Uh, let me talk about punctuality for a second. So there was so – when I was program director and other times, there were a lot of meetings, lots of meetings. You'd have you know, all faculty meeting and then you'd have just the program meeting and then you'd have like just the program directors having me. And then you have program directors with the president meeting and then you have and, – and they're regular meetings that meet all the time regularly and – my life was just dominated by these stupid meetings that I hated. It was just, ugh. And we almost never got anything done. It was always a lot of just checking in and reporting things that could be you know, written in an email, this kind of stuff. And the thing that would drive me bonkers is I was, I'm such a punctual person that I was always 10 minutes early to these meetings because that's just how I am. So I'm 10 minutes early. I'm sitting down. And come the meeting time, say the meeting starts at 2, Two o'clock comes around. No one's there. And there's, there's supposed to be 15 people there. I'm the only one. Five minutes into the meeting time, one person walks in. Five minutes later, yeah, there's four people. 15 minutes later, half of people there. 25 minutes past tw- two o'clock, most everyone has arrived. And then the leader of the meeting will say something like, okay, well... Let's get started, maybe. And how about we go around the room and everyone just check in. Just, you know, let us know how you're doing in life. And I'm thinking, my God, there are so many other things that I could be doing with my time right now. Also, every one of these people in this room is being paid to sit in this ridiculous meeting for no reason. Like, we're not we're not friends. <laughs> we're getting paid to sit here. Our university is strapped for cash and we're wasting it in this stupid meeting. And uh, so that would just drive me bonkers. And, and I'd say, okay, next time 
next time there's a meeting, I'm showing up 25 minutes late, but I couldn't do it because I'm dependable and I'm punctual. I can't stand it. So I'd show up five minutes early and, you know, 25 minutes into the meeting. Okay, let's start checking. And then check-in would take 45 minutes. And then the, you know, the meeting would be, okay, so, well, I didn't have time to look over the agenda today. So I don't really know what to talk about. Who has something that we can talk about? I'm like, why are we in this dumb meeting? Anyway, (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, Let's see. When you close your eyes and think of your happy place, where is it? There's a very specific visual I have in my mind of a meadow that I would actually visit sometimes physically in the suburbs of Seattle where I grew up in Sammamish. And there's very tall grass, lots of wildflowers, maybe a butterfly, sun coming through the trees, and it's very pleasant. Maybe there's some grasshoppers, sunny afternoon. That's where I go in my brain. If you could have any job in the world for one day, what would it be? Any job in the world for one day, what would it be? Any job in the world? Well, it couldn't be any complicated job because I would suck at it. You know, like I I wouldn't want to say I want to be a surgeon (laughs) or a police officer because I wouldn't know what I would be doing. So it had to be some job that I could do easily, right, without – feeling like I was completely stressed out. Uh, oh, I know. Uh, like Bill and Melinda Gates, and I would hand out millions of dollars. That would be very fun. If you could have any job, oh no, what is a cherished family tradition from your childhood? Well, I talked about that earlier, hot dogs and 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 beans. And this year over Zoom, we're going to have hot dogs and beans. <laughs> um, but That'll be last night. I'm, re- I'm recording this before Christmas. Anyway, what is your most embarrassing experience where you forgot an important piece of information? What is your most embarrassing experience where you forgot an important piece of information? Uh, well, I was at my cousin's wedding about, I don't know, seven years ago. And I uh, my, my cousin... It, you know, I don't know any of his friends, really. I, I know them very peripherally. So I'm at his wedding, and I pretty much only know my family members, and all my family is there. And we're, I'm in, you know, we're standing around at the reception, and there's, uh, I think they did the, like the cake cutting ceremony, and then afterwards people were just kind of milling around and talking. And there was kind of this circle of people that me and Stacy were kind of roped into being in. And this woman across the circle, so there's a circle of about like 15 people. And this woman across the circle points at me and says, hey, Honda, you know, how's it going? And, you know, how how you been all these years? And I look at this woman and I'm thinking, I know her. I know I know her. I know she's from a long time ago. She clearly knows me very well, but I know her. But I had this flash thought of like, but where do I know her from? The reason why I was having a hard time is that I absolutely did know her. But because she was at my cousin's wedding, I was like, wait, what? 
I didn't know. So this was an old friend of mine from college that I would have known, I don't know, 20 years prior to this. And she, I did not know she knew my cousin. <laughs> so it took me by, by surprise. And remember, we're in a circle of 15 people that are all looking at the two of us as we're reuniting. And so she says, hey, Honda, how's it going? You know, remember the good old days? And I'm like, yeah, the good old days. And she's like, and I'm thinking, it'll come to me. You know, it'll come to me. I'm, you know, I'll remember where this is. You know, I'm not, I'm not bad with memory. And she says, yeah, you know, th- things were pretty crazy back then. And I'm like, yeah, things are crazy. And then, I, and then it clicks in my head. I'm like, oh, I know who she is. She's from high school. And I'm like, yeah, you know, the good old days from Bellevue and, you know, Factoria and stuff. And I'm, you know, naming all these things. And, and she's listening and she's like pausing. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I wonder what's going on. And she stops. And again, mind you, there's 15 people listening. And she says, you don't remember who I am, do you? And I was like, oh, my God, did I get it wrong? And and she's like, I'm so-and-so from college. And I thought, oh, no, I confused her with this other girl from high school who kind of looks like her but not really. And, it, of course, it all came back to me right away. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, of course I remember. <laughs> I remember billions of memories with you and the all the people we hung out with in college and but that was the most embarrassing experience I've ever had where I forgot an important piece of information which was that she was from college the college buddies and not from the high school buddies and even though it happened 7 years ago my hands still sweat as I think about it I just feel so bad because I was close to her. I probably saw her. I mean, her and I never hung out alone, but in my college friends, I probably saw her twice a week for the span of like three years. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like I occasionally bumped into her. I mean, she was, her friends dated my friends, you know, for long, for years, you know, this kind of thing. And so it was, uh, I just felt so bad. You know, just imagine that you run into an old friend and they don't remember who you, okay, oh, actually, so this is even worse. I have an I have a worse experience. Merry Christmas everyone. Where I've been almost talking for 3 hours. Okay. Where um I went to my 10-year high school reunion and uh I grew up in the same town my entire life. And so I knew everyone and everyone knew me. And uh, so I'm going to my high school reunion and I actually, I actually like my high school reunions. I've actually planned a couple of them. I've actually planned three of them and I enjoy it and I love all those people and I love seeing them and there's not a bad moment. And so I'm going to my 10 year reunion and I'm bumping all these people and I was kind of nervous but I was like, oh, this is great. And, you know, I'm, I, and everyone looked the same because, you know, 10 years, no one really changes. And this – but there was occasionally a person where I was like, oh, I, I recognize that person. But, you know, we weren't really friends because in my class, there was like four to 500 people or something. And so – and some people entered our, you know, high school midway through. And so I knew of them, but I didn't know them anyway. So I'm interacting with everyone and – and I'm kind of a, I don't know, I'm kind of an extrovert in situations like that. So I'm talking to a lot of people and, 
And I run into this one guy and he starts talking to me and I'm like, okay, I don't recognize this guy, but fine. You know, we must have known each other kind of. And so we're talking and we're, you know, we're catching up and we're talking. And then it kind of occurs to me as he's talking like, oh, wait, he knew me really. He knows me really well. He remembers a lot of details about me (laughs) from the old days. But I don't even recognize this dude. Like, who is this guy? I don't recognize his face. I don't understand what's happening. I'm talking to him for, I don't know, a good 15 minutes. And I'm, re- and I'm pulling it off. You know, I'm really, I'm really like, I feel like I'm pulling it off. Midway through <laughs> a sentence, he says, Kirk, you, you, don't, you don't know who I am, do you? You don't, you don't remember me or you don't recognize me or something. Do you, do you know who I am? Do you know my name? <laughs> I'm like, and I'm thinking, well, no, cause we couldn't have been that close. Cause I recognize everyone else in this room except for you. So we must not have been that close. So I said to him, uh, yeah, sorry. I, I don't, I don't remember you. And then he says his name and he was my best friend. <laughs> for like two or three years. He was not just someone I kind of knew. He was my bestest friend. We spent the night of each other's houses. We went on trips together. (laughs) Our families knew each other. We, you know, would do everything together. We engineered our, our school schedule so that we had every class together. If you've seen the TV show Pen15, that was us because <laughs> it was middle school primarily when we were best friends. And, and I felt so bad. But the thing is, is that he had gained a lot of weight and it, he, he was the skinniest dude. We, we actually, we were co-captains of the wrestling team and he, he wrestled uh, at a far lower, even though we were the same height, he was much skinnier than I was. He was a rail. He was just a thin, thin, very gaunt dude when we were growing up. And at the reunion, he was, he was just a lot bigger. And, you know, no harm, no foul. What are you going to do? You know, a lot of people, my, myself included, you just, you know, you, you put on some pounds as, as time goes on. But the thing that the the thing I'll, and I don't feel bad about it because it wasn't like I was trying not to recognize him. I mean, I was trying my best to figure out who this guy was. And the fact that he was my best friend and I absolutely would have recognized him if he looked even remotely close, you know, tells me like the way that his his face held his extra bulk meant it really altered the the look of his face if that makes any sense. And so that was a very embarrassing moment. And now I just feel bad telling that story on the podcast. <laughs> but but I don't know. I mean, what are you going to do? I did my best. Don't shame me. <laughs> uh, I thought this was going to be an hour long, and it's been three hours anyway. So that answers your all your questions, everyone, including Colin's very personal questions here at the end. I'm guessing Colin didn't intend on me answering all those questions, but I don't know. It's Christmas time. And if you're still listening, then you must not have anything else to listen to. So 
I just wanted to really give you something to listen to. Because I'm the same way about my podcasts. When, when I run out of my favorite podcasts on my phone, I get bummed out. When I, when I, you know, I always love it when I have a lot of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And, you know, I'll save you the emails. My favorite podcasts are TBTL, Too Beautiful to Live, which is a local Seattle podcast. Um, it's not for everyone, but I love it. I love the Conan O'Brien podcast. I love Criminal. Uh, I love Pop Culture Happy Hour, Culture Gab Fest, 99% Invisible, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Uh, those are my favorite. Revisionist History, uh, John Green's Anthropology Reviewed uh, podcast is maybe my favorite of all time. This American Life, uh, those are my favorite podcasts. Dan Carlin. Uh, what else? <laughs> All right, everyone. Merry Christmas. If you're still listening, maybe it's not Christmas, but it's Christmas weekend by the time you got around to this. You know, a lot of the questions were about suffering, and I hear it. And a lot of the questions are about loneliness, and I hear that too. And a lot of the questions are about guilt, being guilt-tripped or being pressured, and I hear that too. And... uh um, you deserve to have the holiday that you want and you deserve to not be pressured into things you don't want to do. And you deserve to have the love and you deserve to give love because we all deserve it. We really, really do. 